I didn't really like my stepdad. He wasn't a bad guy. I just didn't know him very well. And he took my dad's place, which didn't really sit well in my head or my heart. You see, my dad died while exercising one day. He was an avid jogger. He seemed so healthy to everyone. But the next thing we knew, an ambulance was driving down the street, racing to my dad's lifeless body. I believe it was an aneurysm. Not really sure what caused it, though. A couple of years later, my mom, being lonely, found someone new. Someone I didn't want to accept. Craig was a nice guy. He was in his early fifties, loved playing video games with my brother and sister, and he took every opportunity he had to try to bond with me. But I wasn't ready to open up yet. Not even when my mom offered that the two of us take a weekend to go hiking in the mountains. She'd been wanting Craig to get more in shape. He wasn't nearly as in shape as my dad. Then again, neither was I. But I did enjoy the outdoors. Craig obliged, but I was hesitant. Imagining just how awkward it was going to be, just me and Craig out in the woods, it didn't sound too fun. One night when my mom pulled me aside after dinner, she begged me to go with them. I was 17 years old, and I would be graduating next year, moving out of state for college. She dreaded the idea of the two of us not knowing each other very well, not getting along. So, to make her happy, we began planning a trip to the mountains. It was nearly fall, right before school started back up. We were carrying big bags, equipped with a tent, some flashlights, batteries, fire starters, because we weren't going to be able to do that castaway style. Craig had also gone shopping and bought some MREs and a bunch of astronaut treats. Those freeze-dried ice cream bars and candy bars and such. He thought it'd be fun to pig out on them the first night. After we got a camp set up, of course. To be quite honest, seeing him so excited to go hiking with me, it really helped me loosen up on the trip. We soon pulled up at the start of the hiking trail on a Friday evening. It was a couple of hours until sundown, but there were plenty of places along the trail to camp at, so we weren't worried about not being able to find a spot fast enough. As we were unloading the gear from the truck, another truck pulled up next to us. A father and his two sons who appeared to be going fishing down by the nearby river. As the two of us got started along the trail, I looked back one last time before the trees enveloped my view of the parking lot. I saw the father and the kids unloading some fishing rods. When the father asked the kid who appeared to be his oldest, or biggest, son, to grab the tackle box under the back seat, by then the trees around us had overtaken our view. It was now just us and nature, and a slowly reddening sky. After about 15 minutes of a walk, we ended up setting camp in a small clearing, which set several yards to the right of the trail. If any other hikers happened to walk by and turn their head, they'd be able to see us pretty clearly. The two of us fumbled with getting the tent set up, 
eventually laughing each time we failed to do so. When we managed to rig it in a way that it wouldn't fall, we collapsed on the ground, tired, and getting pretty hungry. Craig whipped out two astronaut ice cream sandwiches from his backpack, tossing one at me. It was a Neapolitan flavor, you know, strawberry, vanilla, then chocolate. It was dry as heck, as expected, but really delicious. I see some kindling back there not too far behind you. Won't you grab it? We'll get a fire going. Craig requested. I nodded and did as he asked. I brought back a mess of twigs. We made a slight hole in the ground and put the twigs inside. He poured some lighter fluid on it and set it ablaze. Then slowly, one by one, he piled on some small logs. Until there was a full-blown fire before us. He began to pull out two of those collapsing camping chairs. We'd brought those along too, though I think he was regretting it. Carrying just one of those heavy and awkwardly sized things was a bit much, especially for a long hiking trip. But at least we'd have something to sit down on that wasn't dirty or wooden. He passed me the light blue, and he sat down in a lime green. With a big sigh, he asked me, how are you holding up so far? I swatted at a gnat or mosquito or something on my neck, then answered, I love being out here, but uh, never really went camping much. Well, you probably can't tell, Craig said, smacking his beer belly, then laughing, but I'm no outdoorsman either. So, uh, what you hungry for? Beef stew or chicken soup? He pulled out a couple of MRE bags then dangled them in front of me to let me choose. Uh, your choice, I answered, not really knowing what to say. I'd never really had an MRE before, and I wasn't too sure they'd be very good. Beef stew it is. He placed the other bag back in the backpack, then carefully began to read the immense instructions on the back of that bag. After watching him for way too long trying to figure it out, he finally managed to get the bag to the point where the food was heating up inside. We had to sit a couple more minutes before it was done. There was an awkward silence for a while. I think Craig was trying to figure out what to say to me. And to be fair, I didn't know what to say to him either. Suddenly, he blurted out, So, uh, how, how school been? Got a particular girl in your life? I smirked. I don't know why, but him asking me that... It made me feel irritated. Sure, hiking along the way here and chatting it up and cooperating has been fine for me. But I think it was because those activities weren't exclusive to a father and son. But when he asked me about school, it reminded me of how my dad would ask how school was after I'd come home. And I didn't like that. This may sound immature and even mean, but it made me feel like he was pretending to be my dad, but he wasn't. In my head, he was not my dad. He was just a strange man who met my mom, and they happened to get along together. I felt forced to know him, and now I felt forced to bond with him. Looking back on this now, I feel so bad. But back then, my head was filled with anger, rebellion, and the only thing I could think to say was, That's not your business, Craig. Oh, uh, no, I, I'm sorry. I, I understand, but... 
Craig apologized swiftly, his sincerity stumbling out as words I couldn't piece together. Eventually, he caught up with himself and breathed in real deep. What I meant to say was, I know, maybe that was a personal question. I just, well, I want to be your friend first. I know I'll never be your dad. I know that. But I do want to be your friend. Is that okay? I suddenly felt guilt for reacting the way I did, but that was soon replaced with feeling embarrassment for myself. I felt stupid, and I felt awkward. I wasn't ready for the sudden heart-to-heart. I'm just gonna... I began to stand up, when suddenly, something landed right in front of us, landing right on the fire and putting it out all at once. I fell back into my chair, and Craig shouted. The two of us looked down at the campfire together, and there we saw the strangest thing. There was no trace of the dark object we saw briefly fall between us. There was no trace of an impact on the fire either. Instead, the fire was out. Well, it wasn't out, actually. It was it was as if it had never been started. The hole was there that we dug for the fire, and my kindling was waiting to be lit. There was no trace of the twigs being burned. As a matter of fact, the small logs that Craig had placed in the fire were now gone. What in the world? he said, then turned around where he'd kept the logs. Oh my god, he muttered. What? Craig, what is it? I was feeling a bit nervous then. Without turning around, he instead beckoned me with his hand. I came over and looked over his shoulder. There on the ground was each and every log he had found and gathered, including the ones he had placed in the fire. They'd somehow returned to their spot behind them and were not charred or burnt at all. Ah, how is that possible? I asked. You're asking me? I've got no idea, he admitted. It's like a glitch in the Matrix, I guess. I think he was trying to make light of the situation. It wasn't really scary. It was just really confusing, because neither of us had any idea what had just happened. Soon after that, we prepared the tent and got ready to go to sleep. As we got cozy in our sleeping bags, just when things were supposed to get quiet, we instead heard a noise in the distance, sounding like it was coming from above us, like it was coming from the sky. The noise was like a metallic hum. It was one note, playing slowly for the next hour. We sat there listening to it, wondering what it could be from. I guessed it was a plane or something, but there weren't any airports or bases near us. If it was a plane flying overhead, it would have been long gone in a couple of minutes. Craig made a joke about it being just a really weird bird. I didn't know how to reply. He eventually fell asleep, and after several more minutes of confusion, I was too tired to keep my eyes open. In the morning, we packed up, heading further up the trail. The plan was to make it to the peak and then go back down, camping another night before going home. But plans be damned, we never did make it to the peak.
three-quarters of the way up, the humming sound we'd heard in the sky the previous night came again. This time, it was ahead of us. Not above us at all, but ahead of us. Like, if we kept walking, we'd run into it, whatever it was. With curiosity, we kept going, albeit more slowly than before. At the next bend in the trail, I stepped around the corner first and stopped. It took everything I had just to keep breathing. Oh my god, I said, and Craig came rushing up to me, asking what was going on, but then he was breathless too the next second. Ahead of us, where the canopy in the trees opened up just above the trail, hovered three... vortexes. They're hard to describe. They were these black voids sort of spiraling and swirling in on themselves. Each of them hovered a few feet off the ground. I was so awestruck and dying for an explanation for these things that it took me a minute or two to notice the dead deer on the ground. It was a buck. It seemed to have been freshly killed by something. Its midsection was all torn up. They began to descend, these vortexes, onto the carcass. Must have taken them a couple more minutes to do so, they descended so slowly. All the while, Craig and I were dead silent. When these black, spinning things made contact with the deer's body, a great wind began to well out from it, pushing us back. We struggled to keep our footing, and we looked on, trying to see what was going to happen. The three black objects suddenly formed together and disappeared instantly. There was no flash of light, no sudden blackout, nothing like that. They were just gone. Maybe we just couldn't comprehend how they left. But looking back on the trail, the deer's carcass was gone. There were no signs of a struggle in the dirt, no markings at all that the things could have left. No sign of a great wind. Craig, in utter disbelief, ran over to where the deer had been laying before. He was pawing at the ground, muttering, It doesn't make sense. How is that possible? Before looking back at me. I don't think it's safe here, he confessed. Suddenly, there was a deep snort or huff to the left of us. I ran over to Craig, a bit scared and stood next to him. We both faced the woods and saw a buck standing there, perfectly healthy. The horns and that color of fur, they looked the same. The same as the deer that had just been lying on the ground. Its ears twitched at the sound of a twig snapping nearby. Before I could see what it was coming from, Craig had grabbed me by the arm and told me to run. I kept looking back, though, as we did so. The deer had begun to run as well, but a large cat, a mountain lion, I think, had fallen down onto it and was now tearing into its midsection. Tearing into it at the exact same spot we'd found its carcass before. We were running down the trail now. We need to go home. I don't think it's right here. I'm really, really sorry. I was having fun. He looked at me, out of breath, and as if asking permission, he said, Maybe we can do something else sometime soon. Would that be okay? 
I swallowed hard, and I nodded. We started to slow down. We were exhausted now, and it was almost dark again. I'm not sure where we are, Craig said. I've got no idea how close we are to the bottom. I sighed. I don't either. And I really don't want to get lost. Maybe we should set up camp again. We could keep going in the morning. Craig thought it over for several seconds. I may have suggested it, but I had no idea if it was the right decision. We didn't know what the black things were, or if they were even alive. Didn't know if they were dangerous. We just felt weird about the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We'll stay... We'll stay another night, and in the morning, we'll find our way back down. We set up the tent again. We were much more efficient this time. We got some firewood and had a fire going pretty quick. This time the fire was much bigger. Guess we both had a newfound fear of the dark out here. We didn't say anything to each other the rest of the night. And when we went to bed in the tent, we made sure not to put the fire out this time. We just had to have a nightlight. Before we went to sleep, though, there was one thing said. From his sleeping bag, Craig said to me, Good night. I'll make sure to get you home safe tomorrow, I promise. Once again, that feeling of being told something that my dad should be telling me came over me. A bit of anger bubbled to the top, and I couldn't help but reply, I'm not your responsibility, you know. You don't even have to be here. Craig didn't say anything after that, but I could feel that he wanted to. He just didn't know what to say. And just as before, I immediately felt guilt and embarrassment. Until I fell asleep, I kept repeating in my head, I shouldn't have said that. I woke up in the middle of the night, and as soon as I heard Watt had woke me up, my eyes grew wide. It was the humming sound again. It was close, but quiet. I sat straight up and reached over to wake up Craig, but his sleeping bag was empty. When I turned to face the entrance to the tent, the flap was open. I slowly poked out my head, and I looked around didn't take me long to see that Craig was standing just beyond the campfire. He seemed to be staring at something, and when I felt a powerful gust of wind around me, I got out of the tent and I called out towards Craig. Are you alright? I asked. He didn't reply or move. I ran up to him and grabbed him by the shoulder, but he didn't budge. And then I saw what was before him. A large, black vortex, another one, but bigger than any we'd seen yet, and Craig had reached out his hand to touch it. Just before it made contact, I tried to blurt out to tell him to stop. I was even a second away from yanking on his shoulder to separate him from the thing, but it was too late. He touched it. The vortex disappeared, and Craig was gone. One moment, I felt his warm shoulder under my palm, and the next moment, I was latching on to nothing but the night air. Tears welled in my eyes, 
and then I remembered before. When this happened at the campfire, the logs had just appeared where they were, and when it happened to the deer, the deer had reappeared where it had been. I ran around the campsite, but Craig was not there. I ran up and down the trail for twenty yards or so, but Craig was nowhere to be seen. I went back to the campsite and crawled into the tent just to check, and there he was. Craig was in his sleeping bag, but his eyes were wide open, and they were looking straight up. Craig, are you okay? Craig didn't even blink. From the movement of his sleeping bag, his chest rising and falling underneath, I knew he was alive, but he wasn't responsive. I waved my hand in front of his eyes, trying to get him to flinch, to blink, to respond in some way, but he wouldn't budge. Worried and morbidly curious, I crawled up right next to him, looked him in the eye, and slowly lowered my finger. I must have been only a millimeter away from touching his eyelid when I pulled my finger back. He wasn't going to respond to me. It was like he was catatonic. I was crying full on now, tears dripping onto Craig's sleeping bag. I kept calling out to him, even shook him, but nothing would happen. What had he done? Why did he touch that thing? And the last thing I said to him, uh, I told him he didn't have to be here. Guilt had risen up in me more than ever before. I packed up everything, then searched Craig's bag for a cell phone. He hadn't brought one, because he didn't want any distractions from spending time with me. And I didn't have one because I'd simply forgotten to bring it. Great. When all that was left to pack up was the tent and Craig's sleeping bag, which I obviously wasn't able to, I tried to pick him up, but he was bigger than me. I tried to drag him, but that wasn't going to work. I hated the idea of it, but I knew that if I was going to get help, I'd have to leave him here. I tossed more logs in the fire, making sure that he would have plenty of light and warmth. I zipped up his tent real well, so that nothing could get inside. Before I walked down the trail, leaving him in the small clearing, I looked back. Then I whispered, I'm sorry. I took off running down that mountain, but the trail seemed longer than it had before. I ran and ran, tumbling a few times at the weight of my backpack. Soon it was sunrise, letting me know that I'd been running for literally hours, even though the trip up to the highest point, where we'd found the deer, had taken no less than three or four hours of hiking. How could I have run several hours straight downhill and not be at the bottom? There was something truly wrong with this place, and I was soon struggling with the idea that I might not ever make it back. Soon the sun was high in the sky, and I was still running. I had no idea where I was getting the energy. I must have been crying the entire night. My eyes and my cheeks were sore, where tears had fallen and dried up. My face felt like a swollen mess. Just when I thought I was going to give up, I landed on a straightened and familiar part of the trail. I looked up, straight ahead, where I would have expected the trail to end. 
But what I saw was different. There was darkness. A wall of sheer black. A black that seemed to swirl in on itself. A black that gave off a strong wind. I looked left and right. This black wall seemed to extend for as far as I could see between the trees. I walked close to it. I followed it to the left for several meters. Still all darkness. I came back to the trail I was on, then went right. And again, nothing but black wall, like the blackness itself, was shielding me from exiting the mountain. I came back to the trail, and I looked at it. There was only one way we were going to get off this mountain. I had to make it through. I took in a deep breath, and I swallowed down hard. I grabbed onto my backpack straps, as if they were lifelines. I closed my eyes, and I began to approach the black wall. My breathing became frantic, and my footsteps became less sure, but I kept going. One step. The already strong wind got even more rough as if it was trying to pry open my eyelids, but I kept them closed. Two steps. The wind was so strong against my face, it felt as if it was pushing me back, and it was making it hard to breathe. Three steps. The wind died down immediately. The humming noise that had surrounded me had just stopped. When I opened my eyes... It was a couple of hours away from sunset, and there in front of me was the parking lot. Craig's truck was there, and to my left, a father and two sons, one of whom was excitedly racing to the back seat of the truck, pulling out a tackle box from underneath the seat. I was dumbfounded, and I turned around, expecting to see a black wall at the tree line. But what I was actually met with brought more tears to my eyes. I smiled. Whoa, you okay? If you don't want to go hiking, we don't have to. I mean... It was Craig. Happy and healthy and ready to begin our hike. It was like nothing ever happened. Not wasting another moment, I went with what he said. Craig, I'm feeling really sick. I think we need to go home. He hadn't realized I would take him up on his offer, so he started to ask if I was sure. He frowned, obviously disappointed. Are you sure? Maybe we can wait it out and you'll feel better. Shoving my tongue in the back of my throat, and forcing myself to think about everything that had happened, I was able to make myself vomit. Okay, let's get back in the truck. We'll just go hiking another time. He helped me back to the truck, I sat in the passenger seat. Then he got in the driver's seat. His look of disappointment was worse now. I wiped my mouth and caught my breath. When I settled down, I looked at him and touched his shoulder. The same shoulder I'd latched onto when he disappeared. I told him, I I'm not trying to get out of it, I promise. How's about we do something else this weekend? I think it'd be a lot of fun. Just the two of us. He looked at me and smiled. He seemed relieved. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun.
you get used to it. From the other Malfoy. I worked as a security guard at one of the local hospitals, and despite what I'm going to tell you, it's a pretty great place to work. Plentiful hours, pay is good, and the nurses are downright sweet. That being said, it is still a hospital, and as such it comes with its bad things. I confess, and forgive me if I come across as a little bit morbid, I've been in the presence of more death in the first six months on the job than the previous thirty years of my entire life. But that's not exactly what this is about. Now, this story is about the hospital basement. I had initially been hired to work a specific area of the hospital, and I had daytime hours. But when a full-time evening shift opened up, I went for it. Gotta make that money. This meant I had free range to patrol the whole property. One of the areas I got to patrol was the basement. Contrary to what you might think, it's a pretty busy part of the building. X-ray department, custodian, engineering, food prep, those are just some of the many departments that fill the basement. So it's not exactly a spooky, damp, and dark place. But once 8 p.m. hits and the vast majority of employees have gone home, that basement gets quiet. And that's when the incidents began. It was my first week as patrol officer, and so far, it had been rather uneventful. Which I was fine with. I had had five years' experience with private security in other areas, and I was hoping for less action for a while. One night, I was making my rounds in the basement, when I heard footsteps. Normally, this is no big deal, but it was very late so it drew my attention. Still, I wasn't thinking it was a big deal. Maybe a nurse had to grab something, or a visitor took a hilariously big wrong turn. So I wandered over in that direction. As I approached the corner, I checked the wall mirror. For those of you who don't know, hospitals have ball-shaped mirrors to allow staff to check around corners, thus preventing any gurney fender benders. When I did this, I saw nothing. No people, no shadows, no movement of any sort. I rounded the corner to make sure, and it was an empty hallway. Only place they could turn into were the elevators, which I would have heard the ding from if someone had entered them. It was strange, but I shrugged it off. Probably my brain messing with me. A similar incident happened a few days later. While checking to make sure engineering didn't leave their equipment in plain sight, again, I suddenly hear voices. I couldn't make out what they were saying, but it was for sure human voices. I went to check, out of curiosity more than anything else, but no matter where I walked, the voices always seemed distant. I didn't see anyone, and I must have walked the entire basement but the voices always sounded so distant. Then, suddenly, it went quiet, just like that. It was as if they had disappeared, left the area. How very strange, but, again, I chalked it up to nothing unusual. Maybe a custodian left a radio or podcast on. In my mind, it was all easily explained, and no big deal. While that could have been explained easily enough, 
This next one was unnerving, because I still cannot explain it. It was another day, another basement patrol. I was walking down a large stretch of hallway when, in front of me, I noticed a set of doors closing. These are fire doors that are held open magnetically and automatically close upon the fire alarm going off, which incidentally had happened earlier. A false alarm, though. Clearly, these two hadn't been pushed open after the all-clear, so I walked towards them to do the job myself. Then one of them opened up, not swung open aggressively, but just casually opened up, like someone was just passing through. This caused me to stop in my tracks in shock. These doors are quite heavy. Nobody could have just yanked it open and ducked out of sight like that. This door was pushed to the wall all the way in a smooth motion, not shoved, not opened slightly, unless there was a very specifically located hurricane in that spot, those doors were not hit by a sudden draft. Needless to say, I patrolled a more populated area that night. There were also the cold spots. So many cold spots in that basement. It wasn't wind or air conditioning. These were specific moments of cold that randomly disappeared shortly afterwards. These were not normal. They were everywhere. Not just the same spots every time. Different spots. Spots where it should have been warm. Like by the food prep kitchen or near the CT scan room. It just didn't really make sense. A few weeks of this and I was just doing my best to ignore it. Job paid well and I didn't want to abandon ship like that. But that nearly changed one evening. I was on another basement patrol. Woo-hoo, I guess. Sadly, I couldn't skip it or say that I did. The higher-ups would know. They always know. So I'm back again, late at night, in the creepy, empty basement, reminding myself that my car will be paid off a lot faster with this salary. I approached the corner from the first incident. Coincidentally, instinctively, I checked the wall mirror. I froze. There I saw a figure around the corner. Not a person, but a human-shaped black mass. Just standing there, just around the corner. I'm horrified at this point. My mind was already on high alert. Now it was on red alert. I tried to reason with myself. Is it a smudge on the mirror? No, they clean those things daily. I was scared, shaking, wishing I had a fellow guard with me. But what good would that really do, honestly? I'm praying to God, Odin, raw, freaking Santa Claus at this point, praying that this thing does not decide to move towards me. I'm standing there for what seemed like forever, when it finally walks the opposite direction of me. Defying all sense of reason, I decided to poke my head around the corner, try to get a look at this thing. It was gone by then, disappeared. I even checked the mirror again, and it was clear as well. Just me in the basement. I scrambled upstairs on a sprint, and spent the shift around the nurse's station, expecting very little sleep that night when I made it home. A couple of months later, short of the aforementioned cold spots, things had calmed down. 
I began working an earlier shift, and I was down in the basement with a co-worker doing the rounds, when I heard the sound of voices. Now, admittedly, this could be anyone that time of day, but I was still quite paranoid about the basement, so my mind instantly goes to the worst possible explanation. I stopped, then turned to my co-worker. Then I asked, probably sounding freaked out, if they could hear the voices. To my immense relief, they said yes, and I calmed down. Then my co-worker said, You get used to it. I instantly stopped and stared at them. What do you mean by that? I asked. Voices. Weird noises, all that crap. Work here long enough and you just get used to it. Especially down here. I assume you've seen or heard something, judging by how you looked like a deer in the headlights just now. I nod and explain my experiences. They say, Yeah, most of us have all had similar incidents when patrolling down here. Don't worry about it. You'll learn to shrug it off. I'll add quickly that this coworker is older than me and has been with the company for about 15 years, which to me explained how they were so casual and nonchalant about it, while I was losing my mind. But why this area? I asked. Never anywhere else. Do you really have to ask? They laughed, and then it hit me, and I almost kicked myself for not figuring it out sooner. The silhouette, the footsteps, the voices, the door, even the majority of cold spots. They all happened within a close proximity of the morgue. I had been given a tour of the facility when I started, but seeing as I was assigned a specific post when I began, I kind of just forgot about the morgue and where it was located. Why wasn't I told? I asked them. Because if we had just told you outright, you probably wouldn't have believed us. Admit it, they responded. And I can admit they were probably right. If they had mentioned it on day one, I would have laughed it off as either messing with the new guy, or just silly stories. So I can't blame them. I worked at that hospital for a year before being transferred to a different site. Still a hospital, but this one doesn't have an ER, ICU or a morgue, so I feel better about it. My co-workers are great, and the job still pays well, and I genuinely want to be here. But I still double-check those mirrors when I approach any corner, and I still jump at any sound when I'm alone, at night on the job. And I hope, against hope, that I'll eventually get used to it. My Mom's Experience with the Dead From Daniela S. My mom was in the hospital when she was 23. She'd gotten in a really bad motorcycle accident and had broken both her legs. She'd also hurt her head really bad. It was late in the night and she woke up from a very restless sleep. But she didn't open her eyes right away for some reason. Something in her told her to keep them shut. My mom is from Vietnam and grew up in a very spiritual family. This subject isn't something she takes lightly. When she finally did open her eyes, it was because of a murmur 
like someone was trying to talk to her. Her hospital bed was surrounded by pale people. The whole room seemed to be filled with pale people, all trying to get a good look at her. But as soon as she looked at them, they all began to look down at their feet. She was in such shock that she kind of just calmed down and tried to make sense of it. The murmuring grew louder and louder until it sounded like the whole room was quietly mumbling, dozens of people mumbling to each other. But she couldn't see anyone's lips actually move. Then one of them lifted their hand and tried to reach out to her, still not looking at her. That's when my mom began to panic and scream. She says it felt like she blacked out until a nurse came running in, but my mom was found sitting up in bed. The nurse told her it was probably a hallucination from her concussion, and after a long time of soothing her, mom finally went back to sleep. She didn't experience anything else until she got pregnant with me, and we moved to Korea. One day as she was taking the bus, she noticed that amongst the line of people getting on was a very familiar figure, a pale person who only looked at the ground. They boarded the bus. The bus driver didn't even seem to acknowledge them. My mother began to cry and became hysterical when the person moved down the middle of the bus. It was then she saw that they seemed to be floating. Their feet were flat against nothing beneath them. An older woman came to comfort her, and when Mom looked back where the person had been, they were gone. From that day until we moved to America, she had no further problems. Eventually, she would be pregnant with my brother, and she began seeing these people everywhere, in the stores, in the streets, and even outside our home. It was a difficult pregnancy. She ended up going to the hospital a number of times, with smaller complications. When she was there, she would scream and cry if she was ever left alone. In the hospitals, it's where she saw them most. She said they were everywhere. Every which way she looked, they were there. The only way she'd feel safe was if someone was with her, because then the strange pale people wouldn't come any closer. The night after she gave birth to my brother, we were all sleeping in one room because she'd been pretty wrecked by the delivery. The hard pregnancy was nothing compared to actually giving birth to him. Dad says she nearly died, but I don't know how much of that is true. She woke up again in the middle of the night with my brother next to her, and again her bed was surrounded by those people. One of them was holding her hand on the baby's forehead, and at first my mom freaked until she noticed how my brother was pale. But instead of calling out for help, she didn't move. The pale woman stroked the baby's hair over and over until he began to grow pink again, and finally he took a breath. Then she woke up in the morning as a nurse came in to look at the baby. The pale people were gone. Dad and I were still sleeping, and nothing seemed different. The nurse looked over my brother and said that he was fine. Mom says that at that moment, she realized that whoever they were, they weren't trying to hurt or scare her. She thinks they're just lost souls or something of the sort, 
and that her son did almost die that night. But one of them helped him back to life. Then again, maybe it was all dreams, hallucinations. But she tells this story with such sincerity that I can't help but believe her. Now she only sees a few in times of great stress, and she never gets scared of them now. But I still worry. I'm not 100% sure they're good guys. I'm scared that the one who held her hand on my brother wasn't giving him life, but perhaps I'd been the one taking it. I've heard of spirits taking living bodies to come back to the real world. I just hope Mom is right about them. The Cold Hallway From C.E. Scrivener Everyone has different beliefs in the paranormal, but I've always been fascinated by it. It's sort of a hobby for me, I guess. But after this experience, I'll forever have a new perspective on the unexplained. This happened a few years ago when a friend of mine was in a serious car accident. Me and a group of our friends went to the hospital to visit, but he was still in surgery, so we sat in the waiting room for any news. At one point, I got restless and decided to make my way to the cafeteria for some coffee. It was the very early hours of the morning. As I'm making my way down the somewhat empty halls, I hear footsteps approaching me from behind. I turned, expecting to find a nurse or maybe one of my friends coming to join me. But there was no one in the hall. The corridor was silent, save for the few normal noises like machines or the muffled, distant chatter of workers. Something felt off, but I tried to ignore it, as me not being a fan of hospitals. I turned to continue walking. That's when a sudden feeling washed over me, and I froze in place. You know that tingling feeling you get when someone is standing behind you? Goosebumps wash over you, and you turn expecting to see someone. This is what I did but I was once again met with the emptiness of the hallway. The feeling persisted, and I felt all the hair on my body standing on end. The air became cold to the point I could see my breath. I couldn't hear the previous sounds of machines or chatting now. It was like a switch was flipped, and everything became muffled. I was petrified. I didn't know what was happening nor what to do. I wanted to run, but my legs wouldn't work. I tried to speak, but no sound came out. It was like something had taken complete control of me. For what felt like hours being held by this cold, unseen force, I then felt a sudden rush of coldness, as if something had just passed right through me. And just like that, it was gone. I stood there in shock, trying to figure out what had just happened to me. You felt it, didn't you? I suddenly heard a voice, and I looked to find an old woman in a hospital gown walking past me to what I assume was her room. What do you mean? I asked, confused, and she looked back and smiled at me. It comes whenever someone dies around here.
Don't worry. It won't hurt you. She spoke almost amused by my shock. What comes? I asked, not really sure if I wanted to know. The woman gave me another smile. The Reaper, honey. After that exchange, I noped out of there at record speed, nearly falling over my own feet, until I made it to the waiting room. I chose not to share my experience with my friends. They would have just told me I was tired, but I knew it was more than that. Sadly, soon after that experience, we received the unfortunate news that our friend had passed away. His brain injury was too severe. We went home in complete silence, and the next day I could not stop thinking about what happened. What I felt that day I know was not natural. Could I have really encountered a reaper? And I can't help but wonder, was it there for my friend? Ghost in the Asylum From Insulting I have a very real ghost encounter to tell you. It happened at a very populated haunted attraction. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum is a hospital in Weston, West Virginia that is rumored to be haunted. And let me tell you that there is no rumor about it because I know it's 100% true. It was Halloween. I was 17 and had a bunch of friends with me at the time. First, I've got to explain that the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum offers you a deal. If you pay $100 a person, you can stay the night at the haunted hospital, and if you stay till 5 a.m., you get 70% of your money back. We all decided that this year was the year we were going to stay the night. The nighttime stay didn't start until 11 p.m., so we decided to go do the haunted house tour and a couple of other spooky things to wait it out. When 11 p.m. came around, we hurried and ran to the front doors of the asylum and walked in. There were six of us in total, three guys and three girls. It was $600 to do this haunted night stay. When you stay the night at this haunted hospital... You are given an EMF reader and a flashlight. They took our phones because they didn't want us to use the flash or to use the flashlight on them. We were so lucky because we were the only group that was staying the night on Halloween. So after they went over the rules with us, we would be on our own until 5 a.m. Well, if you could last that long. I'll tell you a little bit about the haunted asylum. It has a total of three floors and was constructed in the 1800s. At first, it was a hospital meant to house older, sick patients, and to give them the best care they could. But the 200 limit quickly turned to 2,000, and the hospital was so packed, they had people on hospital beds in the hallways. Now, our group was aware that this place was a place where people would send their loved ones. It said their loved ones would be experimented on, and often killed. But of course, this is what excited us about staying the night, as well as the thought of catching a glimpse of a ghost. At 2.40 a.m., we walked all the halls and looked in all the rooms, 
but never saw anything. But we soon did hear the sound of a girl singing. It seemed to be a lullaby coming from down the hall. I quickly looked at my friends to see their reactions, and they were just as stunned and frightened as I was. We quickly pointed our flashlights down the hallway where the singing was coming from and made our approach to the room. I could finally start to hear the song itself, something like, Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Mama's gonna kill all the bees, little girls. And when the little girls are gone, Mama's gonna kill the rest of them. That's when my flashlight went out, then Ashley's, and so did Ethan's. Those were the only three flashlights the guide gave us, and now we had nothing to help us see. The only thing lighting the hallway and the rooms was the moonlight from the full moon shining through some cracks in the roof. We were two doors away from the room with the singing, and I swear I could make out a half-body and face leaning out of the room, looking right at us. Just then, a cloud or something must have moved, because a beam of moonlight shone through one of the cracks and right on the figure. It was a woman in white. Her face was scarred up, and she was looking right at us with an awful grin. Her eyes were as black as the night, and she had this almost rotten egg smell coming off of her. She took a step out of the door and into the hallway. To my horror, she appeared to be holding the severed arm of a child. She starts to take steps towards us, but has a funny movement to her, almost like she's glitching one foot after another. The smell gets worse as she approaches, then a cloud or something blocks the moonlight again, and she vanishes. I started to walk backwards, shaking and wanting to soil myself. I'd never been so scared. Travis. Someone whispered right beside me. I could hear my name. Quickly, I scream for it to shut up, and I turn 180 degrees. We all take off in a dead sprint towards the stairs. It's such a long run, and I can hear someone behind us, dragging their feet, knocking things over in the hall. As I look back, some more moonlight is coming through, giving me just enough light to see that woman sprinting at us, screaming our names. I almost tripped over the railing down the staircase as we all ran over each other to get to the front door. But there was a problem. They don't want you to leave without letting a staff member know, so the front doors are locked, and the only way to let someone know that you want out is to ring a bell next to the door that will alert someone to come let you out. Well, we start ringing the hell out of that bell but I could hear just the lowest and quiet whisper repeatedly saying, Travis, Travis. I glance back one more time. I see her at the top of the steps looking down on us with that god-awful grin. Right after I saw her, the door swung open as we basically stampeded over the staff member who unlocked it for us. 
We were safe. They fixed up some hot cocoa and let us explain what happened. The spooky thing is that the staff didn't have the reaction I was looking for. They didn't laugh or say we were lying. They had a look of, I know exactly what you saw. Needless to say, after this encounter, we never stayed the night there again. We still do go every year to the haunted house part, but I will not ever set foot back in that asylum. To the listeners out there, believe me or not, but I encourage you to come to Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum and experience it yourself. But be warned, things do happen there, and that ghost lady we saw, she's supposedly named Emily. And supposedly back in 1867, she was taking care of a little girl, but not in a loving way. She could not stand the girl's crying, so after singing her a lullaby, she smothered the girl with a pillow. And, well, you can probably guess the rest. Never Look Behind You From Paranormal Poltergeist 666 I come from a small town in Virginia. This town also happens to be home to a well-known abandoned insane asylum. In simple terms, the building sits overlooking my small town and was originally opened as a school in the 1890s, but was shut down in 1911 after a few homicides. In 1916, it was reopened as an experimental psychiatric facility. There were constant issues with overcrowding and negligence. The hospital was shut down in 2003. If the story behind the building isn't enough to keep you away, let my experience be a warning to you to stay out. It all began a few months ago when the owners of the building began to advertise a public paranormal investigation event. As I'd always been fascinated by the paranormal, I decided to buy my boyfriend and I tickets to the event. I had just started making a YouTube channel, and had decided that this would make a great first video. However, that video never made it onto my channel. A couple of weeks later, I stood outside of the beautifully broken building with amazement in my eyes. I always saw beauty and destruction when it came to abandoned buildings like this one. As soon as we were escorted inside of the main area of the building, the atmosphere changed quickly. A feeling of dread surrounded me and it suddenly felt as though I had an extra hundred pounds on my shoulders. The air was so heavy it felt as though I was suffocating. I decided to ignore the uneasiness around me, and I took a deep breath, as I followed the group up the stairway into the patient corridors. The tour guide began to tell the story of a ten-year-old boy who became a patient to the hospital in the 1940s, but unfortunately he died a few weeks later. As soon as the tour guide finished his sentence with, and then he died, a door to my left suddenly swung open with violent force and slammed into the wall behind it, allowing pieces of drywall to fall to the floor. I flung my body back towards my boyfriend, and my heart began to race. However, I decided to continue the tour anyway. Eventually, it concluded with little interaction from spirits, but then the real horror began. My boyfriend and I split off with some other people and made our way down the stairs toward the basement for the investigation portion of the night. 
I'd always heard that the basement was one of the most active spots in the building, so I wanted to set the camera up there and try to capture something. As we were making our way down the corridor, my boyfriend and the other five or six people were a few feet ahead of me talking amongst themselves. I followed behind them at a slow pace, as I wasn't sure I wanted to be down here after what I had experienced upstairs. All of a sudden, I felt a tug on the back of my shirt, and I heard a harsh whisper say my name. Jenny! I didn't dare turn to look and see what was standing behind me. Instead, I broke free from the grasp of this thing and sprinted to join the rest of the group in the middle of the corridor. A little bit of time had passed and my boyfriend and I decided to set up our camera in the morgue, which was a portion of the basement. We wanted to make an attempt to communicate with the spirits through flashlight signals. Is there anyone here? I asked, pointing towards the flashlight that I had propped up on a small wooden chair. If so, make this light turn off. Immediately, the flashlight begins to frantically flash on and off, and I feel the same tug on the back of my shirt. Jenny! It repeated its harsh whisper again. It repeated it over and over. I did all I could to attempt to break free from the force behind me. However, this time I could not move. I screamed at my boyfriend to get help, and he quickly ran out the door and into the corridor. However, it felt like fire was burning at my skin, on my back, and all of a sudden I had an overwhelming urge to turn around in an attempt to make the pain stop. I swiftly maneuvered my body to face towards the force and immediately made contact with glowing maple-colored eyes of a tall shadow figure behind me. I felt myself stop screaming, and my body froze up. I stood staring at the shadow figure as a sinister smile spread across its face. As I continued to stare into its eyes, I felt drawn towards it. It felt like hours before my boyfriend ran back in with a security guard, when I knew in fact it had only been a few minutes. Just as they frantically burst through the door, the force released its grip on me and dissipated, as if it had never been there. I felt as though I was in a trance while my boyfriend grabbed all the equipment and grabbed my wrist, dragging me up the stairs. Once we arrived in the parking lot, I was finally able to break free from that trance I was in and begin to cry and break down. That was the scariest thing I'd ever experienced. As I look back on the events now, I would like to think that the events that night were caused by an emotional breakdown from stress, but I think my boyfriend and I both know it was far more than that. Now I'm finding it very difficult not to be drawn to the building once again. Ghosts of Firehouse 8 From Fire Medic 332 I'm an EMT and firefighter with 14 years of service. I could write volumes of books of things that I've seen so far. Some hilarious, some would make the hardest of you cry. But when it comes to the paranormal, I have a theory. I believe ghosts don't just haunt the place they died. They tend to haunt the first people they encounter. 
Perhaps it's something comforting to them to attach themselves to a living being at the time of their death. Our firehouse is especially haunted. It's nothing surprising to see doors open on their own, chairs moving along the floor, random objects being moved along tables, and phantom footsteps on all floors, sometimes in the very room we're in. We really became aware of how haunted the place was when we installed motion-activated lights and a CCTV security system. Lights would turn themselves on as if something would trigger the motion sensors, and the security cameras would catch figures moving around, as well as objects moving frequently. But this incident happened when I was just a rookie firefighter. I was cleaning our safety trailer one night. It's modeled after a single wide mobile home, and we use it at schools and special events to teach children and adults alike about fire safety and how to evacuate in case of emergencies. As I was cleaning the outside, I heard some children laughing just outside the firehouse. It was a hot summer day, and I had the bay doors open to let some cool air in. The laughter I heard was nothing particularly noticeable, or creepy, just sounded like two or three kids at play. A few moments later, I could hear them laughing inside of the main bay, where we keep our engine, rescue, and tanker trucks. I closed all but one bay door and made a thorough sweep of the building. I spoke in an assertive but non-threatening tone, informing the children that this was no place to play, that they could get in trouble, or worse, hurt themselves and our equipment. After searching the entire building... I could not find anything or anyone, and I figured they snuck out when I was in the back of the firehouse. So I closed the last bay door and resumed cleaning the safety trailer. Moments later, the door to the kitchen opened. This door has an industrial spring in one of the hinges, and it takes a good seven to ten pounds of pressure to open it, just enough to where a gust of wind or a light breeze could not force it open. From inside, I could see my handheld radio, floating, rotating around as if someone was curiously looking at it. And again, I heard children laughing. This time, it was coming from the kitchen. I was standing on a small attic ladder, frozen in fear. I was the only living person in the firehouse at the time. It was a volunteer station, and it's not staffed 24-7 like a paid one. Suddenly, a chair started sliding in and out from under the kitchen table, but it suddenly stopped. Frozen in fear, I was still on the ladder, but only a few rungs up. To this day, this part gives me chills. I felt a very cold, still air on my legs, and from directly under the trailer, I could hear little whispers and faint giggling. As I finally gathered myself and climbed the ladder... I caught the smell of burnt, wet flesh. To put this smell into perspective, it's similar to the smell of burning meat on a grill and then dousing it with water. It's a smell you won't forget once you've responded to a fatal fire. Still hearing them giggling and whispering, I quickly ran out of the building and drove home, sweating, panting, I later called the chief, 
and told him about what I experienced. He invited me to his home to explain what was happening. He explained to me it was the six-year anniversary of a fatal fire, a fire that claimed the lives of three small children, and they tend to frequently appear at the firehouse, especially on the anniversary of their deaths. What happened next nearly made me vomit. The chief played a video of the 15th anniversary of our fire department's celebration and the delivery of our safety trailer. He paused the video and instructed me to listen very closely. As he played the video again, the camera moved around, and a couple was walking out of the station with their three small children. The children in the video were the same ones who sadly lost their lives six years before that very day, and their innocent laughter, and it was exactly the same as I'd heard around the firehouse. Red in the Dark, from J. Ion I went out on an excursion into the hills and forests of Borneo with my teachers and schoolmates during the holidays in high school. For most of the trip, it was fantastic. The indigenous people were very warm and accommodating. The food and drinks we had were so unique yet delicious. The forests were pristine and beautiful. Wildlife magnificent and rare, the tropical paradise climate. I can go on and on about how amazing Borneo is. That was 99% of the trip. But there is the 1% of the trip that got me writing this. It was during a hike up a mountain on a national park. It was supposed to be a six-hour hike, and it soon became a twelve-hour misadventure. We were meant to leave the camp after lunchtime and return by dinner. We started the hike one hour later than scheduled, because some students had wandered off on their own, and the teachers had to find them. When we finally did start hiking, some kids were significantly slower than the rest of us, so a few teachers had to slow down and watch over them. This in turn made our double-line formation into single-line formations that were intermittent with clusters of students and a teacher pushing them along. Unfortunately, the hike was a very challenging one. We had to climb over boulders, muddy paths, rotten leaves, and sometimes climb under fallen trees or through thick undergrowth. This slowed us down even more especially the teachers who had to cheerlead these slower students on, and occasionally convince a particularly squeamish child to just go under the moss-covered fallen tree that had vines hanging over the edge, and happened to smell of rotten wood, and felt slimy to the touch. When we did arrive at a clearing halfway up the mountain for rest, only half of us made it with our park ranger. We ended up waiting an hour for the other half of the group to join us, before being able to continue. By the time we were approaching the peak, the sun had started to set, and we had only arrived at the midway point of the hike. By then we knew we would not make it back to the camp on time, as going up the mountain alone had taken all of the six hours that we originally designated for the entirety of the hike. Again, at the peak, we had to wait for the slower kids to catch up, and a small group of us ended up waiting in semi-darkness for half an hour, before everyone was present and we proceeded. 
By the time we were descending the mountain, night started setting in. Our park ranger increased his speed, and those of us who could keep up matched his pace to cover the gap so that we could form a somewhat organized line to let those further behind know which way we would be heading by watching our lead. Regrettably, as I found out later on, no matter how well we tried to maintain that line formation, the darkness from the night meant that most people could not see in front of them, especially in the thick foliage of the Borneo jungle that made the brightest of days seem more subdued. Our park ranger was experienced in these group outings, so he and his colleagues had placed red tapes on trees as pathway guides if anybody got lost, a memo we remembered as it got more difficult to see. By the time we arrived at our halfway point in our descent, we stopped to rest and realized that three-quarters of our group had been left way too far behind. They were so far behind that even when we tried making a light signal with our flashlights, no one responded. We then made a sound signal by clapping our hands and still got no response. So the handful of us that remained with the park ranger had to sit in total darkness in the middle of a forest, using the flashlights and our hands to make light and sound signals every five minutes. Almost an hour and a half later, finally we saw and heard responses. We tried being as loud as possible while flashing our lights in the direction of the responses so that they could get to our position. When they were finally with us again, we asked them what happened to make them so slow. The head teacher said that when she could not see the park ranger nor hear us, she followed his instruction to go along with the red tape on the trees. As it was so dark, she had to point her flashlight at trees to find the red tape, and she followed them whenever she saw them, with the students and other teachers in tow. They went down a path that led to a dead end. With such dense foliage, it was impossible for them to go through. She thought it odd, as she did exactly as the park ranger told her. So she decided to backtrack with the group until she came to an area where she could hear our sound signals. Then she followed the sounds until she saw us. Not thinking much of the experience, we proceeded to make our way back to camp. This time, me and two of my friends being senior to the other students and quicker on our feet, volunteered to be the last few people at the tail end of the group so that we could usher everyone ahead and ensure that no one got lost again. As we were getting nearer to the camp, the temperature dropped with each passing minute. I thought it was strange because Borneo was a tropical island. Even in the middle of the thick woods at night, the temperature rarely falls low enough for anyone to see their breath as they exhale, unless they were at the peak of a mountain, which we weren't because we were getting to lower ground. I was walking between my friends when the friend behind me asked to switch places, and I obliged. I noticed that my back felt like it was freezing, even though I was wearing my padded and waterproof backpack, but I didn't think too much of it and continued on. We came to a narrow path that had a section of three wooden steps. When it was my turn, I put my foot on the first step and decided to just skip the remaining steps by jumping onto the ground. Instead, I landed with my face on the ground and my limbs outstretched, 
like I had tripped or been pushed from a high place. The fall really hurt. My entire weight had fallen forwards onto the ground, and my flashlight broke when it hit the ground, causing a big bruise on my wrist, too, as the rear end of the flashlight smashed into my forearm. But more than the pain was my surprise. I remember taking a small leap, and somehow I'm lying there flat on the ground. It was as if I completely lost consciousness for one second during my brief flight down those two steps. My friends turned back to help me up and walked with me between their arms as I was reeling from the pain and surprise. I surmised that I was clumsy and had slipped after a few minutes of thinking about it. When we were back at the camp having our very late dinner and providing first aid to anyone who needed it, I was getting my arm checked out when my friend sat in front of me and asked, Do you know why I asked to switch places with you in the woods? Because you didn't want to be the last person in the dark? I replied. Yeah, but also because I saw a woman in red several meters behind us in the trees. I was terrified. That's why I asked to switch. You are a terrible friend for putting me in a more dangerous position, I replied. When you fell, I knew something was wrong, she continued, because there's no way you could have fallen that way with that tiny height difference. You fell so hard like someone had pushed you. We could hear a loud sound as you hit the ground, too. I'm sorry, but I had to switch. If I had stayed behind, I would have just freaked out and told everyone. If someone was going to get hurt, and I think they were no matter what, would you have rather seen it coming? Fair point, I guess, I answered, as she apologetically helped me with compression and medication. For the rest of the trip, my friend was super nice to me, and even helped me with heavy loads because of the injury to my wrist. She even offered to buy me souvenirs, and became super protective of me when other students were trying to pick on me. But ever since her revelation about seeing a red woman in the dark forests of Borneo, I've developed a reactionary habit of becoming extremely alert whenever I see a flash of red anywhere near trees. The Time We Saw a Nightcrawler From The Quaker It was mid-September in 2014. I live in Visalia, California, and have been here for two years. I've made a good amount of friends. One September night, I was talking to one of them. We'll call them the Commodore. We were on the phone for a couple of minutes, before they asked me to come over to watch some movies. I was on my way to his house to hang out around 7 p.m., once there, we ordered a pizza and drank a couple of sodas, watching a Star Wars movie marathon, which obviously ran a little later than we expected. After Return of the Jedi ended, he turned off the TV. When I got up to stretch, it was around 1am, give or take a few minutes. He asked me to throw away some of the garbage, so I went out back to throw away some of the empty soda bottles, along with the pizza box. As I was taking that out, I caught a glimpse of a white figure in the corner of my eye. I was startled and dropped one of the soda bottles. When I looked up, 
I didn't see anything. I passed it off as one of my friend's neighbors and went back inside. I questioned myself, asking why would anyone be outside at one in the morning. I went to the window to try and get a better look. I didn't see anything at first, but then, as I was turning away from the window, I saw a tall, slender being that appeared to be walking around on two legs. It slowly moved across my friend's backyard, eerily taking step after step with unnaturally long legs. It had no suggestions of a body above the legs either, and there was a spherical shape on top, which I can only assume is the head. Though I could barely see any facial features, I couldn't believe what I was seeing, and tried rubbing my eyes to see if what was in front of me was really there. After realizing that the figure was 100% real, I ran to my friend in a panic. He asked me what was going on, and before he could finish his sentence, I dragged him to the window. I watched as his jaw dropped, seeing the figure. He started to freak out too, so I thought to turn off the lights and duck down. I was afraid to stay in the area, so I asked my friend if he'd rather sleep at my place. He took me up on the offer, and we drove to my house and went to bed, though neither of us could actually fall asleep. That next morning, we tried researching what it was. It took us a while, but after finding numerous videos and pictures of things called the Fresno Nightcrawlers, we thought that's what we had seen. Compared to them, they were of similar shape. There have been a couple of other sightings of these strange creatures around the state. After reading up more and more about creatures similar to this thing and mythology and folklore... I believe they may be ancient beings first discovered by Native Americans. I've shared this story a number of times with friends and family, but not all of them believe us. We know what we saw that night, and I've never seen anything like it before or since. Apartment 408 From Kit Kat Rearia I live in central Alberta, and the apartment I live in is known by many, including previous landlords, to be very haunted. I've been here for almost three years, and the only deaths in the building were all on the fourth floor. The first one was a drug OD, the first spring back in 2018. The second was an elderly man I grew fond of who passed away in February, due to being ill from the condition of his apartment. And finally, the senior in 408, roughly two weeks ago. Somehow, no one knew he lived there. Not even the landlord. He was so sick all the time, he never left his place. He had been deceased for a few days before his body was discovered. And the only reason it was found before summer was because another cold spell hit. So the landlord had to turn up the heat in the building. The A.C. had kept the decomposing smell contained to his apartment. The police, medics, fire department, etc. came and left in a matter of hours. Of course, an investigation had to be done before the body could be removed. It was a sad moment for sure, but we all got on with life as this had become the norm here. Since the man in 408 had passed, weird things began to happen and I mean more than usual. My friend on the fourth floor is friends with 408's neighbor, 
who recently got a girlfriend, and she kept mentioning that she was scared to sleep over, as she had an uneasy feeling about the place. But since her man was in rehab from Monday through Friday, she said she had no choice but to suck it up and keep an eye on the place. There's only four floors in these three apartment buildings, which is one big complex owned by the same company. The elevator started having issues on the fourth floor. You can go up to the fourth floor, but going back down is tricky. You literally have to wait for someone either on the main, second, or third floor to hit the elevator button before it goes back down. A few times this happened to me. It only began happening after the man passed. I would be stuck in the elevator between three to nine minutes or so before the door would open to let me out. But it gets stranger. Multiple people, including myself, in the past week have noticed things such as brooms, pictures, etc. being knocked over multiple times. The first night it happened, I assumed it was one of my cats, who was famous for climbing onto the shelves in the laundry room and knocking over things. So, growing frustrated after the fourth time things fell off the shelf, I put the cat in the kennel after scolding it. I turned in for the night after that. Both cats were with me in my room, and it happened again. This time it was only my daughter's pool noodle and the broom. Now I knew something was up. I tried to dismiss it as the building shifting or something logical like that, so I could get some sleep. But after returning to bed, I couldn't shake the feeling that I was being watched. It was so strong that every time I looked into the hallway, I expected to see someone standing in my doorway, staring at me. Thankfully, I never did. The next morning, I went up to my friend's for coffee and breakfast. She was explaining that her freezer door kept opening, and things like the frozen bag of peas or her stash of chocolate bars would fall out and hit the floor. Then she paused and turned to me, asking, By the way, why were you sneaking around my apartment so late at night? I was dumbfounded. I'd been in bed all night. What do you mean, I asked. My friend didn't look impressed. Dude, I'm not in the mood to joke right now. I freaking watched you walk past my door and down the hall. It was dark, but the light from the TV was bright enough that I could make out a figure. And it was tall like you, all in black like you dress, just in general had your body shape, even your slouch. She explained to me, sounding very tired and very annoyed with me. I assured her that I was too busy being the chicken I am and hiding in my bed all night. She looked horrified at this. But, I swear, it looked just like you, she mumbled. Not much has happened since that night a week ago, other than a few things here and a few things there but I'm still a little scared to fall asleep at night. With ease, anyway. Skinwalker From M. Miller, 96 Yeah, I know it's a topic you've done a million times, but I wanted to share my story with you. First, I feel as though I need to give some background on myself. I was raised by my mother, who was 50% Cherokee and 50% French. Us kids have never met our biological grandpa. 
she believes in the paranormal, but tries to pretend it isn't there. My father, who is Scottish and English, German and Jewish by blood, on the other hand, is 100% atheist and is rather skeptical about things he can't explain. He endeavors to be a logical and scientific person in all things. Well, due to the major differences in personalities, beliefs, and values, they ended up being divorced when I was eight. My mother soon married my stepfather, who was a devout Southern Baptist from Mississippi, and basically gave up her identity as a native and became a God-fearing woman. Despite issues with my mother, my dad continued to let us visit with her mom and stepdad because he felt that they were good people. They taught us many things about native culture, spirituality, legends, and their people. My grandmother and I spent a lot of time together, so I was given an ample opportunity to learn Cherokee medicine. My grandma comes from a long line of medicine men slash women, and is one herself. Now, so many years later, at the ripe old age of 23, I am one myself. So now you have some insight. Now, this isn't a ghost story, but I do believe it qualifies as paranormal, as it is outside usual daily happenings. About two years ago, my father, brother, and I moved into a new home a little more in the country than our previous homes had been, something we thoroughly enjoyed because we grew up immersed in nature and a love for the land. Shortly after moving there, about three months in, I decided it was time to expand the family by getting myself a puppy. This would be the first dog that would actually be in my care. I've always had a very strong connection to dogs as my guiding spirit is a wolf. I learned this on a vision quest many years ago. After a while of searching, I came across a beautiful five-month-old male German Shepherd Pitbull mix. I went to meet him and instantly fell in love. He was the greatest, very sweet, kind to the cats, and protective of me. He became my best friend, everything you could want in a dog. Now, anyone who has owned a puppy or young dog will know potty training is a task. Even after being with us two months, he was still waking me up every two to four hours to go out. Hard on the circadian rhythm, but it had to be done. On one occasion in particular, we got a late-night visitor we were not expecting. Like I said, my dog woke me up in the night. This time it was around 2.45 a.m., and I wasn't ready, but I dragged myself out of bed and clicked on the leash. Opening the back door greeted me with a cold breeze. I rolled my eyes and went out into the yard with my pooch. He did the usual dog thing, sniffing around and jumping in the freshly cut grass, completely forgetting what we'd come outside to do in the first place. I whistled at him, recapturing his attention, so he got back to business. As he squatted, I turned my head to the sky, offering him some privacy. The moon was exceptionally large that night, almost full but not quite. During this observation, I began to realize there was no typical nighttime noise around me. As if that wasn't unusual enough, I had a shiver go down my spine, and my arm hair began to stand on end. That's when I heard my dog let out a low growl. He pinned himself against my legs. When I looked down at him, his tail was tucked, and hackles were raised. When I tried to move, he pressed himself against me more. Another shiver came over me, 
and then I took the opportunity to follow where his eyes were looking. When I did, I was looking at what appeared to be a coyote, not totally uncommon in the area. We had heard them on many nights living here, but this was different, looked different, and felt different. The most frightening thing, however, was that it was looking right back at me. I didn't move, didn't take my eyes off of it. That's how I was able to see its features so clearly in the moonlight. Its fur looked thin, even bald in some spots. Its eyes were yellow, not reflective yellow, like you'd see on a dog in the dark, but yellow like the sun, powerful, almost blinding. Then, looking more closely, I noticed its back legs were longer than a normal coyote. Longer than any canine creature should be, actually. Starting at the hips and going down, they seemed to look almost bipedal in design. That's when it dawned on me just what I was seeing. I picked up my sixty-pound dog, never taking my eyes off the creature. As I did, I said a Cherokee prayer in my head that I'd learned from my grandma. As if it was physically upset, it backed up slightly, and then I heard a voice that perfectly mimicked my grandma's say, Why would you do that, Mickers? That's M-I-K-K-E-R-S, by the way. No one aside from my grandparents ever called me that. It was their special name for me. With that, I darted for the door, dog still in my arms. I entered, put him down, and locked the door behind me. The noise must have woke up my brother, because he came into the kitchen all bothered. He asked me what was going on and why the dog was all riled up. I held my finger to my mouth and shut off the light. We then made our way into the living room and shut that light off as well. And like something out of a horror movie, the outline of a tall humanoid thing was shown through the stained glass of the small window on the door, outlined by the bright moonlight. We both froze, and he made a grab for the doorknob when it began to turn. He caught it just in time to lock it. That's when it spoke to him, too, but this time in my grandpa's voice. Bubba, why don't you let grandpa in? They live on a reservation in Cherokee, North Carolina. His face turned ghost white, and he turned to me. That's when I mouthed the word, and he paled even more. The thing began to tap on the glass, and we both went into my room, ignoring the sound. The following night, around the same time, the tapping came again and grew louder. We sat in the living room, praying to Yune La Nui, the Cherokee sun goddess, also called the Great Spirit. We prayed that it would go away. The tapping turned into knocking, which turned into pounding the more we prayed. This must have woke up my father, because he ran downstairs in a huff. We told him about the night prior during the day, but he didn't believe us, and thought it was just one of my brother's friends being a jerk. So when he saw the silhouette in the window, he grew more angry. He made a beeline for the door to open it. We yelled at him not to open it, but he didn't listen. He threw that door wide open. The creature, instead of harming him, seemed to be afraid. It got down on all fours and disappeared down the road. But my dad had seen enough, 
His face went pale. He stumbled backward a few steps. He locked the door behind him, and we all went to bed. The next day, we talked about the situation. I explained to him the natives called the creature a skinwalker. They aren't very common in Cherokee legend. They're more of a western native legend. But my grandparents still taught us about them. Dad, being the skeptic, just summed it up to a weird thing he couldn't explain. Later that day, I went to our local craft store and bought juniper ash, as my grandma instructed, and I sprinkled it around the house. It never returned, but my dog was never the same after that night. It's as though the entire experience changed him. He went from a loving animal to a mean and unpredictable one. He began lashing out at anyone who wasn't female. We tried correcting it over the course of a year and a half, but nothing helped. When he finally harmed my brother, causing him to bleed, I was forced to find him a new home. Luckily, he's with a couple, who are both female, and he seems much happier. But even to this day, I guarantee he won't go out at night. I didn't mention the name of the creature many times, because it is considered a bad omen in native culture to give those things energy. I'm going to link this story in the description, as the author has ended their story with a guide on how to protect yourself if you're nervous about these entities. So if you're tuning in on YouTube, or on Patreon, I'll have the link in the description. But if you're on a different platform, I won't be linking it. Instead, you can go to my website, darkstories.org. Click the search button in the menu. Make sure Topics is selected for what you're searching. Then type in two words, Skin Walker. You're looking for the post by M. Miller 96. Creature from the Oaks From Clayton K. This took place around mid-September. There had been an argument with my dad and me about something dumb that I can't even remember now. I decided to leave a note that only read Gone Hunting. Now that I think about it, it was a stupid idea to just write that and not fully tell anyone where I was heading to. I guess anger takes its toll when you're not thinking straight. It was bow season, and all I brought was some food that would last me a couple of days, a knife, and my bow. I tried to ask one of my good friends to go with me, but he couldn't make it. I was still determined to go no matter what, because I didn't want to return home for a while. On the way to my hunting destination was a nice drive. I was able to clear my mind for a while, but that would soon change for what was about to come. As soon as I parked, I got my pack ready to settle out to a camping spot. I hiked about five miles in, and I found the perfect clearing for a camping spot. I prepped it, pitched my tent, and was ready to sleep before I went out to hunt. By the time I entered my tent, it must have been 8 p.m., this entire time, nothing felt off or wrong. There was no feeling of a threat at all. As soon as I dozed off, I couldn't help but wonder to myself, if something were to happen to me, would anyone really know where to find me? Cougars are quite common around Southern California, 
But as soon as that thought ran through my mind, I began to realize that the woods around me had gone silent, and all I was able to hear was my own breathing. But then, that was interrupted out of nowhere by a far-off whistle. I would have thought it was a person, but that was way too loud. I was thinking of going outside to investigate, but something told me don't leave the tent. I listened to myself, and what felt to be an eternity was only five minutes or so. When, finally, the wildlife started up again. I brushed it all off to me being paranoid. Soon I dozed off. I woke up to my alarm telling me it was time to set off for my hunt. I grabbed my pack, my bow, and then I set off. The hike to my spot was pretty unsettling. I started to think about what happened the previous night. I was trying to tell myself not to think about it, that I just needed to focus on deer. At long last, I made it to my spot, when, just like last night, every bird, every bug, every other animal around me went dead quiet. I knew this time that something was wrong. I was thinking to myself, this has to be a cougar, and if so, I have to be ready to fling an arrow. I stayed perfectly still, holding my breath, waiting for some kind of noise. Then it happened. I heard a stick break to the left of me, so I swiftly turned that way, and as soon as I did, I heard a noise straight ahead of me. The weird thing was, it was almost like there was more than one of them in the area, unless it was that fast. It seemed to be messing with me. I knew, and it knew, I was scared of it. I was thinking of what I could do at this point, but nothing came to mind. While I was panicking internally, I came to realize this thing was most definitely not a cougar, and I could smell something terrible. With a quick flash, I saw the silhouette of it right in front of me. I gasped, cursing under my breath. I kid you not. This thing attempted to repeat what I had just said. I was so horrified at this point. The only thing I could think to do was to fire at the thing. I managed to hit it right where I wanted to, but it only seemed to anger it. It looked to be about to lunge until I made one desperate act. I shot again before running to my truck. It was still very early in the morning, meaning it was pitch black out. On the way to my truck, I was able to see my campsite, and the tent had been wrecked. No matter how much I convinced myself otherwise, I knew that I could not run the entire five miles back to the truck. So I looked, desperately, for somewhere to hide, so that this thing could not find me. I found a great spot in between some oak trees. I checked the wind in a hurry and realized the wind was hitting my face so the creature would not be able to smell me. The woods around were still very quiet. Then again, as quick as a flash, just as before, the creature came bursting from around the oak trees, the very ones I was hiding in. 
It looked around for a long time, sniffing the air, trying to get a scent of me. But luckily, I was smart enough to read the wind. It seemed to lose interest, but at that point, I was able to see the thing more clearly. Horns, maybe antlers, arms that hung all the way to the ground. Skinny with a slouched composure, but the scariest detail was its face. Even in the dark, this gave me chills. A face that I don't want to remember, and that I cannot even describe. Eventually, the creature gave up. It bounded away, but I waited a while before exiting my hiding spot. The rest of the hike back was thankfully uneventful, and as soon as I got in my truck, I hauled tail out of there. When I made it back home, I gave my dad a big hug and apologized. He pulled me aside to his room and said, Did you go to your bow spot? I gulped and said yes. While he was upset that I had gone out like that, without much warning and going alone, he was just glad that I was home safe. And I was also glad that I came back in one piece. It followed us from Viperberries. This happened in November of 2013. My sister Bailey, an ex-friend called Maria, and Sam, another friend of mine, were with me when this happened. Sam and I were seniors, while Bailey and Maria were sophomores in high school. Sam had told us she used to live in this big house on a hill for ten years, when she was younger. The house and the land was said to be extremely haunted. You could see it on the hill it sits on from the main road a good distance away. She had told us what happened to her and her family when they were there. She told us about the lady in white. People would see a woman walking around in a white Victorian-style dress, haunting the land. Also, people will hear cowbells in the fields when there's no cows, and other such hauntings. These hauntings may have been a contributing factor to the family moving away. The hauntings caused problems for them. Sadly, all but one of their animals passed away there. Their cat that they still have is their only survivor. Now, the house has been sitting abandoned since we were freshmen, so it wasn't in total ruins yet. So, we decided, hey, why not go explore it a little bit? With a little planning, we found a day we could all go together. We all met up at Maria's house and hung out, having a good time until it got pitch dark outside. It was cold and snowing, but we left for the house anyway. It was a bit of a drive. We got onto this dirt road, and as we were driving up it, Sam began to tell us that the new owners living down the road from it had locked everything up so no one could break into the house. Once we got there, we saw it was a very big abandoned place with fields surrounding it and a garage with its door a little more than halfway open. It was bigger than we thought, and we stayed for a couple of hours or so. The dark night sky and falling snow made it look much more creepy. Once we got out of the car, I looked to my right, and I stopped. 
I see the foggy shape of a leg and the bottom of a white dress seemingly walk or float past us, then disappear a split two seconds later. I ask if anyone else saw that. They shook their heads. Not even five minutes had passed after getting there, and stuff was already getting weird. To make things eerier, Maria had blared Grizzly Reminder by Midnight Syndicate off her old phone. We all looked at her as she shrugged with a smirk, but she eventually turned it off. I thought it fit pretty well, with the scenery and such. Then she and Beth began taking pictures, as Sam dragged me to the back of the house. Apparently, the new owners didn't lock everything up, and here's where it gets funny. The three of us managed to squeeze through this opening and were now on the indoor porch. I saw Bailey checking out the house by walking around, and that's when I saw it. A huge, wide-open window next to the padlocked front door. I burst out laughing and told the others who saw it, who then laughed as well. I then climbed in and sat in the windowsill, so I was in the living room, able to see the stairs leading up to the second floor and the hall that leads to the kitchen. Maria was standing behind me, and as we were shining our flashlights around, Sam asked me to let her know if I saw anything that she may have left behind in the house. I nodded, then looked to the floor to find this little toy ladybug lying there. What about this? I asked, picking it up and tossing it to her. Turned out it was something she had been looking for for years. She then took off with Beth in tow to the other side. Too bad it's as haunted as she says it is. Looks like it would have been a nice house to live in at one point, Maria pointed out, looking around the inside. I agreed. It was then that I happened to look into the kitchen, and I saw what appeared to be a young woman in a gown, with stringy hair and wide, dark eyes, just standing there, facing me. I was startled as I stared back at her. Maria asked what was wrong with me, but before I could answer, Sam comes sprinting onto the front porch, with Beth trying to stop her. She starts slamming and pounding and going crazy on the front door. It scared the living crap out of all of us. Sam, what the hell? Me and Maria had screamed at the same time. What? What did I do? She asked, smiling. You've managed to scare the heck out of all of us by pounding on that door, I stated. What are you doing? Beth had demanded after her laughing fit. I'm trying to provoke the ghosts, Sam replied. Well, I said, wish granted. I just saw someone standing in the kitchen. Looking back, the figure was no longer there. They all looked at me. Th there was... I heard Bailey quietly ask. I nodded. Oh, good then. It's working, Sam cheered, running back around with Beth chasing her and calling her names. At this point, the two of us could hear her kicking and slamming on things. Then I heard Maria say when she looked back inside, Please tell me that's just a wooden plank. I looked at her, her face pale and her eyes wide. I shone my flashlight up the stairs as I followed her gaze up the steps, but saw nothing. 
However, I did catch a glimpse of what she saw, and I was hoping it wasn't what I was thinking of. But now as I look back on it, I knew that's what it was. A pair of legs, just a pair of legs, standing at the top step. Now, I know seeing all these things in short amounts of time may be unbelievable, but remember, this is an extremely haunted place. If you don't believe me, at least enjoy the story for what it is. I'm done, I said aloud. I noped my way out of the house. We walked over to the other side and looked through some windows lower to the ground, trying our best not to be scared away. We then see the basement through one of the windows, which looked to be straight out of a horror film. Cliché to say the least, but how else can I describe it? That's one scary basement, Maria had muttered next to me. With that said, the two of us walked back over to the open window. Suddenly, we see a pair of headlights in the distance, and discovered it was a pickup truck heading our way. We turned off our flashlights and waited for the truck to go by. When it did, it drove a good distance away. As we watched it turn around, we heard Bailey and Sam race for our car. We need to go, like now, Bailey yelled, while the headlights hit us and the house. Now, I know it was most likely the new owner seeing what we were doing, but it was still pretty freaky. Maria then yelled at me to run. Being us two, we were the last ones to get to the car as the truck chased us. We all piled in and took off. As we passed the house, Bailey was like, maybe we'll hear some cowbells. We rolled down our windows and listened as we drove off, but we didn't hear anything. After that, we decided to listen to some music to calm ourselves. It was quite late at this point. About half an hour after this, I noticed that Sam went from happy and dancing to quiet and still. She was staring straight ahead. Sam, I said. The way she looked at me still gives me chills. She slowly looked at me, unblinking, a frown etched onto her face and her pupils. Her pupils were smaller than normal. She looked possessed. What's wrong? I asked, but she didn't answer. It took a couple of tries to get her to snap out of it as she stared at me like this. And when she did, her eyes became normal before telling me something felt like it was tickling the back of her throat. I think I know why I suddenly feel like this, she said. Why? I asked. She held up the ladybug thing I'd found between us. I stared at it as Bailey turned the music down. Oh, crap, throw that thing out the window then, Maria exclaimed. So we decided to do that long before we made it to Maria's house. I felt bad. She loved that thing and we had to get rid of it. Once we got to her place... Inside, everyone but me fell asleep in the living room shortly after. I was still watching TV and doing whatever. A snowstorm had brewed up outside at that point, and quite a while later, however, I felt like I was being watched. No one else was awake, and as I tried to brush the feeling off, 
I suddenly hear really heavy footsteps stomping around loudly on the porch, like a very angry person. It scared me to death. The only thing that was separating me from where I was laying on the couch and the porch was a thin wall. So, basically, it was right behind me. I listened intently. I was too scared to yell for everyone else to wake up and was actually frozen in my spot. Minutes had gone by before I gained the courage to sit up and peer through the window curtains and blindfolds. I pulled them open, and as the footsteps continued, I saw nothing. I stared out into the dark, snowy night, still hearing this stomping. I was in shock for maybe another thirty seconds before I quickly laid back down, terrified. I tried my best to ignore it, which must have lasted about twenty minutes. I hoped that watching TV would help. But that was difficult. That night, the snow was soft, and the storm was quite mild, so I don't believe what I heard was hail or hard clumps of snow hitting the porch. The next morning, I explained to the others what happened. Sam looked like she felt bad for bringing us there, and it creeped all of them out but it reminded us to look over the photos we took. Our best one is of a house shot, and there's something of what appears to be someone looking at us by leaning out of one of the attic windows. I wish I had the pictures to show you. For the next couple of days, weird, creepy things began happening to us, but never to Sam. Each of us would call her and explain. For example, our animals acted strangely, we heard scratching at night. We saw scratch marks on walls. We would see figures, hear voices, things like that. But after two days, it all stopped. A week later, one day at school, Sam came up to us as we were just chilling out in the halls during break. We had asked her what was up. She looked spooked. She tells us some days after our experience, her parents were driving by the house her mother had glanced at the garage and happened to see a pair of legs covered in a white dress dangling as if she was seeing the ghost of someone who had hung themselves. The rest of the apparition was obscured by the garage door. We haven't been to that house ever since. The Shadow Figures From Caleb 36 I used to live in an apartment complex close to a very large golf course. When I moved in, I quickly became friends with many kids my age, including my neighbor, who we'll call Z. Z would go to this golf course and sell golfers back their lost balls that he collected from the very expansive woods on the property. We often would go to these woods to goof off, build bike trails, make forts, and other typical things young boys do when playing in the woods. We found a lot of cool but odd things in those woods, like an abandoned train and what seemed to be a few exploded buildings with rubble and bathroom doors as far as a hundred yards away from the buildings themselves, which were only foundations at this point. One day, we were showing two other kids who lived in my complex these woods, as we were walking through, sticks began to fall from trees in all directions, mainly at us, 
as we walked in a loose pack. This was very weird, as there was no wind that day. As I turn to look at one of the others, named Z, I see a very thick stick, or small log rather, fly inches above his head. If it were an inch lower, it would have knocked him out. That could have caused a lot of damage. We all ran out of those woods not knowing what to think. Though we were frightened at the time, we were able to brush this off later. About a week after that, Z and I were back in those woods. This time, it was just us. After a long day of messing around in the woods, we were on a trail leading back out of the woods, and because it was a very hot day, now I sometimes wear shorts under my sweatpants. I was doing that that day, actually. So I was able to take off my sweatpants without a problem. I remember telling Z as I did so, Thank God nothing like that happened again, referring to the stick incident. Right after, I got the strangest, most fear-invoking feeling I've ever felt in my life. The hair on the back of my neck stood straight up, and I felt as if I were being intently watched. I turned around to see what was causing this feeling, where I find what I can only describe as a shadowy figure. Thinking about it still gives me goosebumps. About twenty yards back, a solid black figure is staring at me, so to speak. I know staring isn't the right word, because the thing had no facial features, only blackness, but I knew it was facing me. I knew it was watching. I stared at the slender, maybe seven-foot-tall thing with long arms that led down to hands with abnormally long fingers. Z keeps walking, having no idea that the thing is behind us. All of a sudden, it sounded like a tree fell directly to our right, and as I turn to bolt, I catch a glimpse of another black figure. But this one is shorter, way bulkier. Imagine the dimensions of a gorilla. Z finally notices. The two of us bolt out of there as fast as we could, running faster than I think we ever did in our lives before that. As soon as we made it out of the woods and back on the golf course, realizing nothing followed us, we began to laugh really hard. I mean, dying of laughter. I can only assume this was due to an adrenaline rush. After that wore off, I decided to go back for my sweats, as I wasn't and still am not a superstitious man, and I'd made my mind up that I was going to find two kids laughing their butts off as they just pulled off the prank of the century. As I pick up my pants and turn to leave... I hear footsteps circling me, but I could not see what was causing them. So I jogged out of the woods and walked home with Z. I've been back to those woods and haven't encountered anything since, but I'm worried if these figures make an appearance again, they might do more than just chase us out of their territory. More than just a ghost story from Ryan O. This took place in a small town in Alabama, back in the late 70s. I was visiting my grandparents for the summer, as I often did as a boy. 
My sister also spent part of her summers there and attended summer school, where she made plenty of friends and a few enemies. Sometimes guys would pay her more attention than they would to their own girlfriends. On this particular night, a hot and humid Alabama night, her friend from Atlanta was visiting us. My sister's accounts of how many girls she made jealous always ended with both of them laughing about it. But on this occasion, late at night, my sister decided to change the subject to an eerie one. She was good at that, especially because she loved reading books on the occult and sharing what she read with others. The three of us sat in a circle, listening to her in the calm, hot evening. An electric fan humming on the floor was the only sound in the room, save my sister's voice. The TV was turned off, and we kept only one lamp on, because we knew it was time for ghost stories. My grandparents were asleep, and my mother was heading to bed, catching a few words my sister spoke about the paranormal, and told us she thought it was nonsense. This made us giggle. Then she called it a night. After we refocused our attention on ghost storytelling, my sister began describing to us a few scenarios of how creepy it would be if we were caught up in them, such as being alone in a house where a chandelier began moving in a circular motion on its own, then hearing a creepy spectral voice emit from it as it called out your name in repetition. Undoubtedly, she was right. It was creepy to think about. There was something about my sister's voice as well, it would give me shivers late at night. It almost sounded as if an actual chain-rattling ghost was telling the story. Imagine that. Her voice greatly magnified the creepy effect of a ghostly encounter. So she had my full attention. I was scared, but I also wanted to hear more, like so many of us do in those situations. She decided to bring up a spooky old house that was actually located just down the road. That house had been victim to a fire a number of years prior. I remember her guiding me and a few others inside the house one day. I ended up scraping my leg when I fell through a splintered hole while climbing the staircase. It was a minor scrape, fortunately. To me, this house was a lot less scary in the daytime. Just a lot of scorched walls and brittle wood. On the front door, someone had spray-painted Haunted House in red. As a joke, I think. But those words made me quite nervous every time I passed by the crumbling structure on my bike. I could only imagine what occurred at night inside that building. Visions of disembodied heads floating around the place were enough to get me pedaling faster towards home. It was no joke to me. After the chandelier talk, she told us a story about these ghosts, which she said gathered around the house at midnight on certain occasions chanting eerie words in a cult-like tone, chants that sounded like diabolic moans. She said there were thirteen of these ghosts who continued the ritual until the break of dawn when they completely disappeared. Just as mysterious in their vanishing as their materialization at midnight. Of course, my sister's story made my spine tingle, as I'm sure it did her friend. Even more than her uncanny chandelier description, it was getting pretty late, and we were pretty tired, so we all decided to turn in after this haunting tale, hoping to shake off the chills it gave us. My sister and her friend had the sofa with a fold-out bed in the living room, 
while I retired to a bed in my mother's room. The bedroom window was only a few feet away from me and was left open so cooler air could flow in, but only a window screen protected us from the elements outside. Moonlight beamed in, and a slight breeze rustled the curtains on both sides occasionally. As I slipped into my twin-sized bed, I was exhausted from the adventurous day, but still quite uneasy after listening to the ghost story revolving around the old house down the road. Nonetheless, I did fall asleep, until something awakened me. Eerie moaning sounds outside the open window. They sounded exactly like what I imagined the moans my sister described earlier would be, only more sobering because they were actually happening. They weren't too distant. As I recall, the moans were constant, waving in and out, and they seemed to emit from that abandoned house down the road. But occasionally, one of the moaning voices wandered away from its origins and moved closer to the open window closer to me. Then it would eventually rejoin the others further out, almost like one of the ghosts was checking me out for a while, like it knew how afraid I was, feeding off my fear like some sort of vicious spectral dog. My eyes were closed at this time, so I pictured a textbook ghost hovering outside the window, lifeless eyes, torn clothing, just waiting to get at me when the time was right. I was petrified in fear, praying these dreadful things from beyond would go away. I could only lie there in the bed, hearing my mother snore occasionally. She wasn't at all aware of these odd sounds. The only protection I had was the screen and a white sheet I had over me in the warm, moonlit room. I never saw anything outside. Then again, I hardly kept my eyes open long enough to notice. The macabre visions of midnight ghosts wandering about frightened me enough as it was. Perhaps I was so scared that I actually passed out, because the next thing I remember was waking up after dawn, feeling blessed in the comfort of daylight. The phantom moans were completely gone, too. I never heard them again, and my sister never repeated the ghostly tale but I still had chills down my spine every time I rode my bicycle on that road, riding past that old haunted house on hot summer afternoons. I never rode by there at night, for obvious reasons. They Let Me Go From Summer of 2019 I certainly don't want to be seen as crazy, even I think that anyone who would tell an account like this would be nothing less than crazy. This happened last summer in Algonquin Park, Ontario, Canada. It's the reason why I'll never go back there. It was a long weekend. Me and my friends had planned weeks before to go up to a camping ground and have a good time. Me being 19 and the youngest of the group, never having camped before, I was a bit nervous but I became more excited the closer the trip grew. I'd gone to a scout shop and caught a bunch of new camping gear, which I have long since given away. I'm not planning to go camping again after this. So we arrived on the Friday night and set up camp. 
I was learning from the more experienced campers in the group how to set up my tent and where. There were six of us, including me, and I felt relaxed sitting around the campfire the first night, laughing and telling funny stories about school and friends and family. As it got dark, four of the group members were tired from the long drive from the city, so they settled into their tents. I stayed up. I was filled with excitement from experiencing my first camping trip. Two of the others in the group stayed up too, Sarah and Jonathan. They were kind of flirty with each other, but I didn't mind. The campground wasn't very full, which struck me as odd. It was a long summer weekend, and the night was overcast. Looking into the woods, it was pitch black out there. It was rather chilly, and we were low on firewood. So Jonathan proposed that he and I go out and collect some. I was a bit nervous, but I agreed. We left Sarah by the fire, then headed out into the woods with my brand new flashlight. He was using his phone light. Not wanting to go too far, I found a dead fallen tree, so I started to break off arm-length branches. I had to put down the flashlight at one point, so I could snap the tree limbs with both arms. I soon stopped when I heard a crunching in the woods maybe thirty feet in front of me. Thinking that Jonathan was trying to go around and give me a newbie scare, I dropped my pile of firewood and hid behind the dead tree. I turned off the light so I could give him a taste of his own medicine. I heard the crunching growing closer, but a second later in the opposite direction I heard Jonathan calling out to me, back the way I'd come from. So... It wasn't Jonathan. Scared, I stayed silent from the noise of the large footsteps. They were still coming towards me. Then a musky, gross smell hit me. I held my breath and slowly turned, blood roaring in my ears. I looked out over the dead tree from my seated position, and I saw a large, dark shape looking like it was covered in patches of fur and standing on two legs. In a second... I was up on my feet, running back to the campsite, not caring that I had dropped my flashlight in my haste. When I was back in camp, I was slightly shaken. Sarah and Jonathan looked at me confused and asked what was wrong. I described what I heard and saw, and Jonathan just laughed it off, saying that I was spooked by a bear looking for food around the camp. They made a joke about me becoming its dinner but Sarah said it was probably more scared of me than I was of it. I highly doubt that. Not impressed and feeling a bit more relaxed after the explanation, I went into my single man's tent for the night. All I wanted to do was sleep, coming down from my adrenaline rush. The next morning, I went back, looking for where I left my flashlight, but I couldn't find it. I was disappointed. I spent a lot of money on that thing, but... Crap happens, I guess. That day we spent cooking around the fire, playing games like soccer and going on hikes. I opted not to go on any hikes and volunteered to watch the camp. I was a little nervous about what was out there, and all my friends agreed. We needed someone to look after the camp after all. While Canadians are nice, not all of them are, and petty theft happens at campsites all the time. So they left on their walk around 1 p.m. I estimated that they'd be back around 3 or 4. I sat at the fire reading a novel I'd brought just in case I got bored. Soon the fire was low again. By then it was 3 p.m. 
I decided I'd rather go out and get firewood while it was still light out, not wanting to risk running into that large thing again. I set my book aside, and I went into the woods the opposite way I went the previous night. By about forty feet into the woods, I'd managed to get a good pile in my arms, when I was hit with that smell again. I quickly turned to head back, but I froze, dropping the pile of twigs and branches in my arms. There it was, the creature from the night prior, sitting up in a maple tree about fifteen feet from the ground looking down at me. It looked like a large wolf, sick and wrong and skeletal, with a large scar on its left shoulder. Its eyes were yellow, with the dark parts trained on me. It realized I was looking at it. It looked like it started to smile. It was showing its yellow, sharp teeth. Then it jumped to the ground, landing with a heavy thud. When they say you get frozen in fear, I knew then what that felt like. I couldn't move. Primal fear took hold. The thing tilted its head at me, and took a step forward, then another. That's when I noticed it was holding something, in its skeletal wolf-human hand. It was my flashlight from last night. It seemed to smile wider, as if it stopped ten feet from me and held out the flashlight to me, almost like it wanted me to take it. Then it slowly crushed it, the plastic and glass cracking ominously in the woods. It dropped what was left at its feet. I shook, tremors coursing down my spine. I heard more rustling in the trees around me. And then the whispers. Whispers that came close and grew loud. But then there were other whispers mixed in. Some beckoned me. Others warned me to get away. It was all garbled together, and out of the corner of my eyes I saw dark shapes around me. My eyes were glued to the large one in front of me, though. That's when I blacked out. I don't remember anything after that. Not until I woke up. When I came to, it was dark, and I was beside the campfire. My friends were prodding me gently. They asked if I was okay, and if I needed to go to the hospital. My eyes felt heavy, and I was confused. I looked up to see five very concerned friends. They informed me that when they got back, I was gone. They looked around and found me in the tree line, just by the campsite. My head was covered in dried blood. They asked if I remembered falling, and if I did, how hard. They asked if I was attacked, too. I slowly sat up and felt the back of my head. It hurt like mad, and it was matted with dry blood like they said. I looked at my friends, confused. I wasn't just in the tree line, I was a bit away from the tree line. And those things... Cold rushed through my veins. I don't know why, but all I said was that I tripped and hit my head while going to look for firewood, and that I felt horrible. I wanted to leave... My friends nodded their heads, said they were already starting to pack up so they could take me to the hospital. They finished loading up the cars and truck. We left soon after, and I kept my eyes closed the whole ride back. 
I was too scared to see anything out the window for as long as we were still within the woodland areas. I didn't want to see those eyes staring back into mine. I'll never go camping again. I've learned my lesson that there are far worse things than mosquitoes and bears in Canada's woods. I feel like some of those creatures didn't want to do me harm, but others did, and I have no idea why they let me go. Who knows for sure? I'll never find out. In fact, I don't think I'll ever feel the need to even want to find out. I used to work at a McDonald's that was open 24-7 in a small part of my town. I live in a city, but the restaurant itself was situated in an isolated part of the suburbs, which bordered farmland and woods. I've quite a few unnerving stories from my experiences there, but all of them pale in comparison to the one I'm about to tell you. After the recent firing of another employee, I was rotated to fill the hole left in the typical night crew. As you may know, McDonald's doesn't use set shifts, but instead fills in employees to time blocks as needed. As I was a recent hire, they had no issue flipping my schedule around. I was only informed Sunday by my boss that I'd be working from 10pm to 4am that week. Begrudgingly, I went to sleep as late as I could, which ended up being around 5 in the morning on Monday. That way I'd be better prepared for my new shift. When I arrived at the restaurant, it surprised me how quiet it was. There were no customers in the building, and the other employees seemed to be keeping to themselves. We weren't a restaurant equipped for DoorDash or anything like that, so there wasn't really much work to be done until someone came in the door or through the drive-thru. The other employees didn't talk to me at all. The only one that did was the only other woman working in the restaurant, I'll call her Sarah. She told me the current staff already had the kitchen taken care of, and said I should just work the front of the restaurant. I found it weird that she was instructing me like that, despite not being a manager. But as it didn't seem like one was on duty anyway, I listened to her, and set myself down behind the register. From where I was seated, I had a pretty nice view into the front of the restaurant. I could see part of the parking lot, which was only illuminated by a single sodium lamp, the kind that glowed a pale orange. To the left of the lot was the road, and to the left of the road were the suburbs, which slowly dissolved into rural territory. Grass grew a few feet high, and a thick forest began about fifty yards from the street, and stretched as far as I could see. I spent most of my time on the phone and gazing out the front windows, we only had about four or five customers an hour. Only once that week did a group of people actually come in. It was early Wednesday morning when three rather tall, pale-faced guys entered the store wearing full camouflage outfits, with the pattern broken by the brightly colored hats on top of their heads. It was a welcomed sight, as they were energetic and talkative. After they told me what they wanted... I casually asked why they were dressed like hunters, considering it was 1 a.m. All of them grew silent, and the one closest to me said they didn't have the opportunity to change since they got dressed. I found that pretty odd, but didn't ask any other questions as I handed him his order number. 
which was really just a formality considering it was the only order at the time. After they got their food, they sat down at the booth closest to the door. As they ate, I thought I caught them glancing at me every now and then. I probably could have forgotten about it if it weren't for what happened next. After the men finished eating, two of them stood up by the door, as the one who I spoke to previously came up to me. In his very thick country accent, he said the following, which I still remember word for word. Be careful, doll. There be some weird things in these here woods. He maintained eye contact as he said this, and he backed up slowly, not waiting for a response, before he turned around and left the restaurant with his friends. Nothing else out of the ordinary happened that night, but I still couldn't shake what the man had said to me. The following night, I started another shift. It was very rainy out, though the shift itself was uneventful and, if anything, slower than the other days. It must have been around eleven when it first happened. Stopping to look up from the register, I saw a figure outside of the restaurant. I adjusted my glasses and squinted my eyes, but I still couldn't make it out fully. From what I could tell, it was a man. It looked like he was wearing a large trench coat. He was standing at the very edge of the streetlight in the parking lot, right where the pavement met the tall grass. I kept staring at him, and he didn't move. I probably watched this peculiar man for a good few minutes before I looked away, and in all that time I could really only see that he was very tall. I turned around, and through the gaps in the kitchen hardware I could see my co-workers, which did relax me a little. I was just about to say one of their names to get them to come look at the man, but as I turned around, I saw that he was no longer there. He had vanished. I recalled the hunter's words from the night before as I tried to rationalize it. Why would some guy be out there standing still in a McDonald's parking lot so late at night? No new cars were outside, so I knew he wasn't preparing to come in for food. Finally, I assumed he was just walking home and had stopped under the streetlight to check his phone for directions, or something along those lines. It didn't make much sense otherwise, but that explanation was enough to calm my nerves. We only got a few customers between when I first saw the man and when I saw him next, which was a while past one in the morning. I know because I was just checking my phone when I looked up out the window, and I saw him again. Only this time, he was closer. I could make him out better because he had moved in from the very edge of the light and was now directly under it. His face was still in shadow, or something, because I couldn't see it. I could clearly make out his coat, however. It was large and long. It seemed to be a deep brown leather or facsimile and it glistened under the orange of the light from the shine the rain gave to it. It also looked tattered, with large gashes in the fabric. I could hardly see the man himself, though. However, it was clear under the light that he was very tall. He was right next to one of the employee's cars, and he stood at least four feet higher than the roof of it. My chest tightened, and it started to become hard to breathe. He continued to stand staring in the direction of the restaurant. Even though the windows were tinted from the outside, 
it felt like he was looking right at me. This time, I kept my eyes on him, and I called for Sarah. She came out from the kitchen a few seconds later, asking me what I needed. I could only point mouth wide open at the man. She saw him too, and walked forward a few paces. Who is that? She asked. I don't know. He was just there. Sarah moved towards the door, and to my unease, she opened it. From there, she called out to the perfectly still man. Hello? She paused, eliciting no response before saying something else. Can I help you? At this, the man, or whatever it was, took off. Almost instantly, it spun itself around and bolted in the direction of the woods. As it did this, I saw its legs rather clearly as the coat picked up from the wind resistance. What I saw chilled me. The legs were twisted or backwards. It looked almost like a dog's legs, only far longer. Sarah saw it too, and walked back inside without hesitation. She looked at me, expressionless, before muttering that if it came back, I should call her. She then returned to the kitchen, saying nothing else. I was in a daze for a little while after that. What just happened had felt surreal to me. I couldn't fathom what that thing was or how Sarah could remain so cool about it. Thankfully, though, the thing never returned during the rest of the shift, and I got home safely. That day, I did not sleep well at all. I remember waking up and falling back to sleep constantly, all the while anxious about that creature. When I awoke that afternoon, I decided against my better judgment to get prepped for work again. I didn't want to risk seeing the thing from the night before, but at the same time, I needed the money badly. When the night finally came, I was dreading my shift. As I finally pulled into the parking lot, I realized, to my horror, the streetlight that hung over the parking lot was out. I couldn't see what the damage was as it was nighttime, and the closest working light was a good 75 yards away. The parking lot felt more unsafe than it ever had. My entire walk to the restaurant, I was imagining the creature peering at me from the very edge of the darkness. That night, there were no customers. I mean, absolutely none. The restaurant felt so lonely and even more so when I found out Sarah hadn't clocked in. One of the people working in the back told me she called in sick when I asked about her. Between my only friend in the workplace being gone, no customers coming in, and my phone being out of power, the night was excruciatingly slow. Though I could barely see a foot outside of the restaurant since the light was out, I could have sworn that on many occasions I saw a figure moving, just out of sight. Somehow I managed to make it through the majority of my shift. I was looking at the store clock, which read 2.59, when it happened. Without warning, the front window on the left side of the door shattered, and as it did, a large rock came through. It skidded along the floor before arriving just on the other side of my till. I was frozen in terror and surprise. Two of the kitchen staff came out when they heard the noise, asking me what had happened. 
I just pointed at the window as I bent down and picked up the rock. To my astonishment, the rock was hot to the touch, almost burning my hand as I picked it up. Soon after that, we called the police. They arrived rather quickly, taking our statements and doing not much else. After locking up the store, we called it a night due to the vandalism and headed home early. It was rather awkward with everyone leaving at the same time, because where my car was, I had to wait until everyone filed out of the parking lot to leave myself. Just as I was about to pull away, though, I saw something truly terrifying. Out of the passenger window, I saw the creature again. It was standing up on the roof of the restaurant, towering above it ominously. Again, there were no lights nearby, and I could only make out its silhouette, a deep black on the dark purple early morning sky. But I knew it was there. As I stared at it, paralyzed, it seemed to drop its coat. And as it did, I noticed the silhouette grow noticeably skinnier. It was then that I saw it outstretch its arms, and it flapped them, revealing a massive pair of wings. Without any further delay, it took off into the sky, and with it I heard a sharp, ear-piercing noise, which I can only compare to when a fast vehicle breaks the speed of sound. As soon as it was clear from view, my reflexes kicked in, and I pulled out of the parking lot extremely quickly flooring it well over the speed limit back home. Sufficed to say, I did not return to that McDonald's. What that creature was, Spriggan, Doppelganger, Demon, I don't know. All I do know is that I've never seen a more horrifying, inhuman creature, and I hope to never run into it again. To this day, I still sometimes have dreams about it, Take a girl's advice. If you're going to work a night shift, make sure it's somewhere a little more populated than a McDonald's in the middle of nowhere. Banshee in the Colorado Mountains From Wicked Skits My husband and I moved to Colorado. I was actually raised there. I was excited to share my home city with my husband. Well, it was October 2019, and all we had was our truck and a grand in our pockets. The decision had been spontaneous. We bought a pop-up camper in Colorado Springs, and decided to camp in Woodland Park. They have all-year-round camping, and it's free. The first week was quiet, except for the folks who were illegally hunting elk out there. Now my husband got a drop in town, so I'd be alone till late midnight. Of course, in October here it snows. I noticed that it would get quiet outside the camper at night. That would give me goosebumps, and I noticed my dog, a Cheweenie, would whimper and hide under my blanket. Now that's not how she usually is. She's usually attentive and guarding me. Well, that particular night, this made me nervous. I turned out my lantern and listened outside. I must have sat there for ten minutes and heard nothing that was out of the ordinary. I go to turn the lantern back on, and I hear the strangest thing. Loud and ghostly screams. 
These chilling noises were coming from more than one direction. There were multiple sources. Suddenly, a bunch of guys on ATVs pass by, and the noises stop. And soon after, my husband pulls up. He walked in and looked at me, asking me if I was okay. I was pale as a ghost. I explained to him what happened. Now, my husband takes things like this seriously, whether it's supernatural or unexplained or what, and I thank him for that. He tried to make me feel better, and we went to bed around 2 a.m. But a couple of hours later, my husband wakes me up and whispers in my ear, telling me to not say anything, to just listen. The noises are back. Screams that sound like banshees all around the camper. We lay there, barely moving or breathing, just listening to the sound of these multiple things outside. My husband begins to shake. I look over towards him, but I saw from the light of the moon that right next to my husband's head, just outside the camper, which, mind you, is a pop-up camper, so it's just cloth, I saw next to him a shadowy figure. It seemed as if the figure was smelling my husband. Those screams got closer and closer all around us. It lasted for another hour. But luckily, they left. This would happen every night around 3 a.m. Towards the last of that month, before we packed up to Denver, the Banshee calls got worse. They would begin to claw and slap at the camper. Eventually, it would stop, but I remember the first time it happened. In the morning, my husband noticed he had a bad cut on his arm, and the pop-up camper's cloth had tears and scratches all over it. We were forced to have to sell it. We couldn't afford the cost to recloth the thing. What matters is we made it out of there alive. Possible Skinwalker from Levi. I'd like to begin with the typical I'm no writer statement, and I'm writing this to the best of my memories. It's been a while, so the time it happened is a bit blurry. I believe it was November of 2018. This was the only time I've ever seen this thing. I live in northern Kentucky, about an hour or so from Cincinnati, Ohio. I live right along a highway in a little valley-like area. Across the street is a small field. To the left of it is my neighbor's house and a yard light. Behind the field is a line of trees and a river. The field turns into a big hill. Behind my house is another large hill. And this happened around 12 at night. My family had just done laundry and all of it was still in the car. We had done bedding this time, so I went outside to go get one of my blankets. I normally look around quite a lot when I go outside at night, because I'm actually terrified of being out when it's dark, and I have been since I was little. I had just stepped off my porch, looking straight across the field. That's when I saw the most bizarre-looking thing, what appeared to be a hairless deer standing in the middle of it, facing towards me. Now, seeing deer is quite normal in the area. I live in the middle of rural Kentucky, there's deer everywhere. What really scared me about it, though, was it was hairless and pale. It had what looked like a thin layer of skin over its eyes, nose, and ears, too. 
as if it didn't have nostril holes or actual eyes, or at the very least, they were covered up. I froze once I saw it, and I couldn't process what I was looking at. I must have stood there for five minutes never moving, and it never moved too. I couldn't smell anything bad. I actually couldn't smell anything at all. Once I snapped out of my frozen state, I ran back inside to grab a flashlight and to get a better look. When I came back out, that thing had already disappeared. These other incidents are minor. It could just be me getting scared over nothing, but I figured I'd add them anyway. I used to hike a lot on and around the hill in my yard. There was a small creek going through the part of my backyard as well that separated the backwoods from the field in my backyard. I would usually go across the creek and then follow it all the way back to my property. But one day, while I was on my way back, I heard something that sounded like a chicken, but distorted. It didn't at all sound right, and it was coming from up the hill. At the time, we did have chickens, but they never went back that far or near the creek. I ended up walking quicker to the creek to try and get across without running, and it wouldn't stop calling till I got to the creek. I didn't hear it anymore after that. This is another story that happened earlier this year in April. I was out hiking again, alone of course, way back in the woods along the creek. I was no longer on my property. The people that own the land on the hill own a lot of the woods back behind us, and there are several fields on top of the hills. I was hiking up one of the old tractor trails. These were cleared-out pathways from the fields going across the creek in a spot in the valley back there. I decided to step off the path to look at some moss under the cedar trees, when I heard a rhythmic, sort of clacking sound, like two rocks hitting each other down the hill from me. At this point, I was far away from the path. Where I heard it, it seemed to be coming very far right of the pathway, which was close to me. I decided to try and go towards it to see if I could spot what was making the noise, but I didn't see anything. I was texting my cousin during this, telling him what I heard. I ended up freaking out and calling my mom, staying on the phone with her until I got back home. The entire time it felt as if I was being watched. Maybe I was just paranoid. I haven't had any more incidents other than feeling a very strong presence when I go out past the creek since March. I'm not even sure what the creature was. I think it may have been a wendigo or skinwalker, but I honestly have no clue. Hopefully I never run back into this being again. The Hellhound That Hated Us All From Anonymous First off, I'd like to start by saying I'm someone who believes in the paranormal. I believe in witches, witchcraft, and all that good stuff. I've just turned 19, but this story took place when I was maybe 14. Back then, I lived in an apartment with my older half-sister and older half-brother, along with my little brother, who isn't half, and my mother. I'd also like to note that in this apartment, my mom had this family picture of all four of us kids and her. She also had separate pictures of each of us near the kitchen along a windowsill. This is important to the story later on. Me and my younger brother came back from school to find the house empty. 
I forget what happened, but for some reason my brother and I got into a fight. I, being mad, went to my room and closed the door, trying to avoid my brother in the other room. I started to watch a movie. I clearly remember it was The Blind Side, when suddenly my brother comes barging in my room. He was half out of breath and looked like he had seen a ghost. He told me, while trying to catch his breath, that he had seen a dog in the bathroom. Judging by his expression and noticing how he never laughed or smiled, I could tell he wasn't joking. He was very serious. I told him to get in my room, and I closed and locked the doors. I then grabbed two of my Bibles from under my bed that I kept safe in a shoebox. I gave him the older one, and I held on to the newer one that I had recently got from my mother. We hid in my bed under the blankets completely terrified and shaken, while grasping the Bibles close to our chests. We waited for what seemed like only a few seconds when the locked door to my bedroom just slams open hard on its own. It shook the whole room. My brother and I are completely horrified at this point. I suddenly begin to pray in my mind, asking God to take over the situation for us. Soon after I did that, we hear nothing after the door slams open, just complete silence. We waited for what seemed like forever, too scared to lift the covers off our heads. I was afraid it would show up looking for us if I did. Then my brother says, after a few minutes of waiting, that we should get up and see if it was still there in the house. We finally get up, and we found ourselves back to back, with the Bibles held out in front of us. The first thing we did was check the bathroom. We looked inside to find nothing in there. We then scanned the entirety of the house to find it completely empty and quiet. We sit in the kitchen to process what had just happened. I started to ask questions to my brother about the thing he saw. I asked him what it looked like and he said it stood as tall as a kitchen counter and its legs were bent looking, almost as if they were broken. He said it stood halfway behind the door and it was facing the shower which means the opposite to where my brother was standing. He said it was slowly turning to face him and as it did so, he could hear its bones cracking. He said that the head of it was like that of a goat. I then asked if it was see-through or actually there because a lot of ghost sightings are see-through. But he said he couldn't see through it, so it was really there. He explained that it appeared to have horns, and the mouth was drooling intensely, as it was chipped open like you would see on a dead goat skull, and its eyes were beady red. I was in complete shock when I heard this. I then started to process whether he was lying or not. First off, if he was lying... He would have laughed when he told me he saw it. Second of all, if this was a joke, he wouldn't be able to tell me as much detail about it, head-on, like he did. Third, and most of all, if it really was a prank, how would he be able to slam open a locked door if he was by my side the whole time? He even told me not to tell Mom about it. So I did as he asked, because I myself didn't want to frighten anyone. I wished the story ended there, but it doesn't. A few days after this so-called hellhound attack, my mother yells at all of us to get up. It was about four or five in the morning and she was very angry at all of us. 
Everyone was completely clueless as to why she would be so angry as to wake us all up at this hour of the day. She then asked us in a very angry tone why we would knock over the pictures she had of each of us, and why the family picture was cracked right where all our necks met. We all looked at each other in confusion. Then I looked at my younger brother, and he gave me that same look of concern that it might have been that creature that scared us a few days back. We still proceeded to keep it a secret, and left it at that. Later on, I asked my younger brother to draw it for me, and he did. It was horrifying, and I wish I still had the drawing. I remember telling my dad about it, and he thinks it grew from our anger, since we had a fight before it happened. After we moved out of the apartments and several months went by, I finally told my mother about it, and she was very shocked. My mother is one to believe in the paranormal, and she knows that it is very much real. So when I told her about this event, she seemed shocked, and asked me why I didn't tell her the day that it happened. I simply said that I didn't want anyone to freak out about it, and she understood. Since then, I'd have to say that this is by far the creepiest encounter that I've ever experienced, especially since it slammed open a locked door like it was nothing. Bring on the night shift. Ain't nothing quite like working until after dark, when all the creepy crawlies and ghoulies emerge from the woodwork, looking for someone to chew on. Enjoy these eight extremely disturbing night shift stories, but remember to lock your doors, or else you might not be alone for long. Remember, if you have a story to share, go to darkstories.org. I'd love to hear some sleepover stories and security guard encounters. Oh, and tell me in the comments if you've ever had a night shift job. And if so, what's the weirdest thing that ever happened to you during your shift? Now, let's begin. Night Stalker at Work From Leah I'm a 21-year-old girl. My story is of a stalker who continued to come to my work late at night. I worked part-time at a clothing store, which I will not say the specific name of. I had been working at my work for almost a full month and was still getting the hang of everything. I was put on the 7pm to 12am shift, so that meant I would close the store. The store was really good about always having two or more people close the store so that he wouldn't be alone. Thank God for that, because it was just us girls working there. The only man was my manager who was rarely in. So on my shift was one of my closest friends named Shannon, as well as a girl who was also new like me named Katie, and the assistant manager, Hannah. Shannon was vacuuming in the different clothing departments. Hannah was in the back dealing with shipments, and Katie was cleaning out the dressing rooms and putting away clothes. Now, please note that there always has to be someone up front where the cash registers are. 
and unfortunately that person was me. I was fine with being up there by myself, I didn't mind it, I liked the peace and quiet, since we didn't have many customers late at night. I'm a very anxious person, so I usually try not to make eye contact with people and smile awkwardly. Hannah had brought up some new clothes from the back that needed to be tagged and put away. Then she returned to the back. I began tagging up front as a man walked in. He was wearing a light gray t-shirt with dark jeans, flip-flops, and a baseball cap. I didn't pay much attention as I really loved tagging clothes, so I said my usual, Welcome to the store, and went back to tagging. I guess he took that as an invitation to come and talk to me. He came up to the counter and leaned on the glass showcases. I asked him if there was anything I could help with. He then requested to know where the men's beanies were, which we don't sell. I told him that. He nodded and grew silent, staring at me as I tagged clothes. I got a bit uncomfortable but kept tagging, hoping he would go away. A few minutes passed as he randomly said my name. Just the sound of my name coming from his mouth gave me the creeps. I looked over at him with a nervous smile and said, Yes, what can I help you with? Keep in mind that at this point, he had been in our store for nearly an hour. He asked me how hard my job was and how many off days I get. I told him it's not too hard and I'm not off a lot because of the lack of workers. We only had five other girls. He asked me if I wanted to leave work and, quote-unquote, do a little something-something together. That creeped me out to the point I could hear my heart pounding in my ears. I told him politely that I have a boyfriend, which was true. He then got enraged and began yelling at me. Really, that's how you're gonna be. The other girls heard the commotion and came up front to my aid as the man stormed outside, but not before he showed me his knife in his pocket secretively. I could feel tears forming in my eyes as Shannon grabbed me by my hands, concerned. Hannah was asking me what happened, but I couldn't get my words out. All I could do was start to hyperventilate and cry. Shannon took me to the back and held me as I cried. Hannah came back and told me that I could leave early. It was 11.30 at that point. I told her okay and thank you as I grabbed my purse from my locker and I said my goodbyes. I walked cautiously to my car outside and I saw the same man from earlier sitting on the hood of my car twirling the blade in his hands while watching me. My knees felt like noodles as I ran back inside. I then screamed at Hannah to lock the doors. She questioned me why, and I told her to look on my car. She saw him, and mumbled a curse under her breath. She then locked the doors and set the alarms, and proceeded to call the police. The police showed up, but said all they found on my car were stab marks, and the brake line had been cut. I don't work at that store anymore, so... To my stalker, let's not meet again. Not Alone From L. Charade I'm a 34-year-old woman who's been working at the library for several years now, 
Our town's library is quite nice. Half of it is all glass. The other half is this relaxing wood color. Speaking of relaxing, working at a library is the most comfortable job I've ever had. We're open from 8 to 8. And after 8 p.m., I organize books until 10, then take off for home. And usually, only one person needs to stick around until 10. And as I'm single, and kind of bored at home, I like to volunteer to be the one that sticks around organizing books after closing, much to the joy of my co-workers. One particularly slow Thursday, 8 o'clock rolls around. I bid goodbye to my co-workers as I begin to organize books, taking my time and listening to some Avril Lavigne. Now, organizing books isn't a hard job. We have a slot at the side of the building that collects books for those who don't want to enter, but need to return something. So I just grab the tub that has all the books in them that have been returned, go through them, put them where they need to go, and double-check the digital catalog to make sure that they're all checked in on there, too. Usually, it's as easy as just scanning the book back in, but our scanner had been broken for the last month. Funny how a library with such a nice exterior has a broken scanner that the city just doesn't want to replace too quickly. I didn't mind. If I had to stay past ten a few minutes, so be it. I would get that organization done. While I'm looking through the bin that I had just dragged to the front desk, I hear the front doors open and close, which reminds me that, like an idiot, I'd forgotten to lock the doors up front. I could be a forgetful person. Usually, when I forget to lock the doors and someone comes in, it's as easy as saying, I'm sorry, but we're closed. Most people are fine with that and don't start a problem. But I swear, when I looked up at the front doors, I didn't see anyone there. It was as if the door opened on its own. Or if someone did come in, they raced past before I could look up. Which would be a really weird thing to do. So I just assumed that someone had opened the door before they saw the hours printed on the door. Then they realized we were closed. I shrugged and kept doing my job. But I did keep an ear and eye out in case someone did sneak in. That's not unheard of either. I've had the local junior high and high school kids try to sneak in and stay overnight. I had no idea why they kept doing this until I saw the same thing being done on YouTube. Grown men sneaking behind Walmart shelves and staying the night unbeknownst to the employees. While that can be funny and entertaining to watch, Walmart is different. Most of those stores stay open 24-7, I think. But the library closes at 8, and if some kid refuses to leave, then I have to stay till they're gone. A few minutes past 10 is fine, but clashing with teenagers till 11 until the police show up is not. Anyway... I'd begun to divide the books into different categories, when I suddenly heard footsteps coming from the non-fiction section. I craned my head over to peer into that direction, but a decorative pillar was in the way of my view. I sighed and got up. I would have to go investigate. The non-fiction section is on the ground level, and consists of several different aisles, but it didn't take long to glance through each aisle. No one was there, so I just went back to the front desk. The moment before I sat down at my chair, though, I heard a different sound. One that honestly did creep me out a bit. That sound was whispering. Like someone rapidly muttering under their breath. 
not wanting to be heard, but also not wanting to keep it to themselves. It was then that I was starting to get ghost vibes. I hadn't heard any ghost stories from my co-workers so far, so I never assumed that the library was haunted, and I wasn't really ready to assume that now. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy ghost stories, and I watched Ghost Hunters for the longest time, but it takes a lot for me to believe in something like that. I go to the nearby wall and click on the upstairs lights. Then I make my way up the flight of steps. I call out, letting anyone know who might be there that the library is closed and that they should leave. I wouldn't even need to escort them. When the doors here are locked, you can still exit from the inside. Pretty convenient. I called out twice, and still no one responded, and no one moved. Not until I make it to the top of the steps, where I suddenly hear quick footsteps traveling away from me. It sounded like they were coming from the flight of steps opposite to this one. Steadily, I made my way between the aisles up here, checking each one like I did before, slowly making my way to the other flight of steps. After seeing nothing weird or out of the ordinary up here, I used the next flight of steps to go back down to the ground floor. But on the third step from the top, I see something on the floor. I gasp audibly when I see that it's blood. A chill goes down my spine. I'm wondering if this is really happening. Wondering what this even is. A break-in? A vengeful ghost? Or a nosebleed someone had earlier that day and never cleaned up? I settled on that idea. I continued down the steps making a mental note that after the books are organized, I'll need to go get that blood up. Then again, that blood did look kind of fresh, I thought. Putting it at the back of my mind, I went back to the front desk. I tried calling out a warning again. Once more, no reply. I sit down at the desk, finishing up the separating books into categories part, before delivering them to their proper shelves. Social sciences, language, science, all that good stuff. After that, I returned to my desk. I double-checked the computer, where I'd just typed a list of those books that were returned. When the information looked good, I confirmed the entry. Almost the exact moment I click confirm, the whispering muttering starts again, this time coming from behind me. I was so startled and terrified that I didn't want to turn at all. But I decided to do it in a hurry. All at once, I jumped up and turned around, looking behind me, and all I see is a large, dark silhouette, crossing from one aisle to the left, over to the right. It was definitely masculine. I stumble backwards, feeling for the phone at the desk. I find it, and pull it up to my ear, then turn around to dial 911. An operator picked up, and I let them know that someone is in the library, possibly hurt, and they won't leave. They let me know that they'd send over someone as soon as possible. They wanted me to stay on the line, but since the desk phone was actually a corded phone, and I didn't want to be tethered to one spot, I told them I was going to hang up and wait at the front door. I had a cell phone, and if I had any further problems, I could just call them again. So I hang up the phone. I go over to the light switches in the wall again, this time turning on every light in the building. I stay at the front desk, even though I should have been making my way outside. 
I felt too scared to move. Why did someone sneak in here like that? Why were they muttering like a madman? And what was that blood about? All this information together made me feel like I had to be afraid of something. Just when I finally convinced myself that I should go outside, even if I had to do it slowly, I heard more whispering. This time, it was coming from above me, coming from the second floor. The second floor has balconies. That's important to know with what happened next, because suddenly, a massive weight landed on top of me. I was flattened to the floor, a wave of pain flowing throughout my body. It felt as if I'd been crushed, and then, not a moment later, a sharp and deep burning sensation erupted on my left shoulder blade. I kicked and I screamed. Somehow I was able to break free. I turned toward what landed on me and scurried backward. A large man stood up, trembling and shaking violently, muttering some kind of nonsense to himself under his breath constantly. Instead of staring at me, he glanced in every direction and back to me repeatedly, as if he was delusional. This man was mentally not right. Perhaps he was on drugs of some sort, but that didn't matter to me because I was in grave danger, pain still filing over my body, like a bunch of wasps constantly stinging me on my back. I picked myself up, and I ran for the side door. It wasn't as close as the front door, but in that direction, there wouldn't be an insane, homeless-looking man to attack me. I slammed the door open and ran outside, nearly tackling a police officer by accident. I heard him curse and glance towards my shoulder, Asking me if I was okay, I told them about the man in there, that he had attacked me and that he looked crazed. Using my keys, I led them inside, where they searched the entire area. Second floor and first floor, every aisle, every point in and between. But somehow, they didn't come up with anything more than a blood spot on that step that I'd seen, and my own blood on the ground at the desk. Turns out... The man had stabbed me in the left shoulder blade with a steak knife. Thankfully, I didn't suffer much more than bruising and some stitches. I would heal up just fine, physically. Mentally, I was unstable for a while and didn't feel safe no matter if I was at home or somewhere else. That man, whoever he was, did a lot of psychological damage to me. Once the police had swept over the place... One of them came outside to stay with me. He called an ambulance. Then he tried to comfort me, letting me know what he thought of the person who attacked me. From his guess, it was probably someone on drugs. He said people around these parts take a certain kind of drug that can make them see things that aren't there. Ugh, even that made me shudder. We live in a nice town. I wouldn't think people like that existed here. I guess I was more sheltered than I thought I was. I was given two weeks paid time off from the library, to heal up and try to get back to normal. I still work there, and even now, we never heard anything more of the man, meaning he was never caught. But for the next year or so, we did have a police officer staying there with us. He'd stay until everyone left, making sure everyone was okay. I think that might be the only reason I never quit. The Contract 
from Kent. For the past six years, I've been self-employed, mowing lawns, doing landscaping, pulling up roots and stumps, and things like that. For the first few years, I'd go door-to-door, knocking or leaving my business card, hoping the people wanted some lawn service. If they already had someone, maybe I could offer a better rate. I can tell you now just how competitive that sort of business is, especially in the South. You see, down here, a lot of folks take pride in lawn care and farm care. When they got a tree that needs cut down, they like to do it themselves. When they've got acres of land in need of some brush hogging, they do it themselves too, more often than not. So for the first few years, my jobs were few and far between. Revenue was low, and contracts were slow to come in. I cut prices as much as I could. I'd go door-to-door every day, hoping that I wasn't just bothering people. Now, this story in particular is one I've wanted to tell for a while. But as I'm someone who doesn't really have people in my life, like friends or close family members, I didn't really have anyone to talk to. So it's nice to have some place to share. This is actually the story of what got my business off the ground. You see, I finally found a farmer who did not want to mow and clear his own land. He had purchased a few acres away from his own farmland, so there was a gap of forest between his new land and his current land. He wasn't too happy about this, because the bid he placed for the land in between was being delayed. I don't know what that means, or how bids get delayed, or how that works, but that sucks for him. But because I lived closer to the plot of land that he wanted to clear out, and because he was already busy with his crops on his current land, he decided to contract me to mow and clear the land there. That would entail brush hogging several acres, cutting down some trees and uprooting a bunch of stumps, all of which I know how to do and do quite well. The week came where I'd be fulfilling this contract. My plan was to get it all done within five days. Immediately upon arriving there, I noticed something weird. A good fifty yards or so of the land had been cleared already. It looked like someone started to clear it and just changed their mind. If I had to guess, it looked like the farmer did it. Maybe he stopped when he realized he didn't have time to do it himself. I just went with that and started my work. As I had two or three other clients during the day, I usually ended up out here around 6 p.m., just before it got really dark. I would work well into the morning, too, usually leaving around 4 a.m. I worked myself to the bone, so that I'd not only get the contract done in time, but I'd also have a spare day to make sure everything looked great. And if you're thinking that doing all this at night is a bad idea, it was well away from any other people living out there. And I'm talking miles. They wouldn't even hear me in the distance. And plus, I had a couple of spotlights that I could set up before I started working. Anyway, on to the story. The first night was the roughest. I had to figure out the most efficient angle to approach this whole lot. There were at least a dozen trees in there that needed cut down and their stumps removed. But it would be really irritating to get to that before mowing the grass, which reached over six feet in some places. It was well overgrown. So first I did a drive around of the area, slowly checking to make sure there weren't any giant rocks hidden under the grass that would tear up my brush hog. Once I'd mentally mapped a good path, I started my tractor and got to it. 
Now, brush hogging has always been my favorite thing to do for the business. The more to brush hog, the better. It's quite peaceful being up there, and it's especially satisfying when you turn and see a good clean cut. Anyway, I started cutting where the farmer left off, to keep things neat, and because that side had fewer shrubs and trees to deal with, so I could cut more before being bothered. Now, around 7.45, when the moon was full in the sky, I nearly had a heart attack when I ran over something with the brush hog. Whatever it was let out this shrill cry that was so much louder than my tractor. I'd never gotten goosebumps so fast. I turned off the tractor and turned around, horrified that I may have cut up a deer. I jumped down out of my seat and went to check the blades. Everything seemed fine, and I'd pulled up a few feet before jumping down to see if there was anything under it. I didn't even find any blood. At least, I don't think I did. Because I did find a strange substance on the grass. There was this thick, syrupy, dark blue goop splotched all over the grass I had just cut. Reminded me of mucus in consistency. I stood up and looked around, peeking over the grass and checking the tree line. If I did run over something, it was apparently okay enough to walk away. I didn't see anything at first. I calmed myself down with a swig of red Gatorade. Then I climbed back into the tractor, continuing my contract. But I didn't go more than a yard, I'd say, before the tractor tipped to the left. I shut it off again and I went back to see what it was. Apparently, my back left tire had dipped into a large hole in the ground. Just as I was beginning to think that I needed to ask the farmer if he wanted this filled, I spotted more of that goop. I couldn't tell if it was leading in or out of that hole. Scratching my head, I walked back over to the tractor seat, considering myself lucky that the tractor didn't tip over completely. I must have skirted by on the edge of it, Otherwise, my tractor would have fallen in. Now, I'm searching for my keys in my coat pocket. Whenever I turned the tractor off, I had a habit of taking the keys with me. A habit I formed after some of my stuff got stolen before I started this business. But the pockets on that jacket were a bit too large and open. I cursed under my breath and hopped back out of the seat once again to go search for my keys. They couldn't have been far. They had to be on the ground somewhere in the freshly cut grass. I was knelt down, my attention focused around the back left tire. Before long, I caught a glimmer of metal just in front of the back left tire. As I reached out to grab them, I heard a sudden shuffling sound coming from my right. I jumped up and looked over, and I swear to God, I saw some sort of leg entering the hole. Something had just crawled into it. I slowly approached the hole again. Wondering if I might be able to see what it was, I made it to the hole. I stood over it and reached out my head to peer down. It was too deep and dark to see much. I shrugged and got back on the tractor. To be honest, I was a little shaken up. I had no idea what kind of animal that was. That leg didn't appear hairy, so I was wondering to myself what kind of hairless critters were that big around these parts. That was all for the strangeness of that night. I finished up as much as I could, and when I couldn't hold my head up any longer, I called it quits and drove home. Gatorade and lukewarm coffee can only get you so far. The following day started out the same. 
I finished up with a couple of regular clients, then made my way to the farmer's property. I had to pass his home before getting to the acreage he wanted me to take care of, but before I made it out there, I decided to stop by his place and ask him about that hole and the already cleared portion of the land. He was taking a break on his front porch. It was about 5.15 p.m. at that point, but he had a lot more work to do. I told him I'm glad I caught him at a good time then. I told him about the hole, stating it must have been about four and a half feet wide, and Lord knows how deep. He told me he didn't know about it, but he did say he had a ton of dirt or so on his current property. He asked me to take as much as I needed to cover that hole. Sounds good, I replied. And then I asked him about the already cut part of the field. That's when his eyebrows furrowed. He quit leaning back in his rocking chair and leaned forward instead, placing his boots back on the ground. He took off his hat and scratched above his ear, then put the hat back on. Yeah, I was cutting a bit of it myself to start out with. He explained to me. But to be honest with you, besides not having the time or motivation, I just didn't feel right out there. Kept hearing things, you know? Something moving around in the grass. Something big. You can call me a crazy old fart if you like, but I just didn't like it. Would rather pay someone to do it for me and get it over with. Well, I didn't expect him to be that upfront about it, so I appreciated him letting me know. I told him I agreed with him. Something just felt scary out there. Found some weird substance on the grass, heard a weird cry, and I saw something climbing into that hole. I told him all that. He laughed and told me to be careful, and that if I had any trouble, just drive back down here and let him know. After that conversation, I headed right up to the acreage. I had a lot to do. If I planned things out right and kept working, I could clear out nearly 85% of the brush today. But first things first, I backed my truck up to the hole with the dirt piled in the back. With a shovel, I began to throw dirt in. At first, I wasn't sure if I had brought enough, but my mind was at ease as the last of the dirt went in, and the hole was perfectly filled, now level with the rest of the ground around it. I jumped down onto the dirt and started to pack it, then did the same by backing over it repeatedly with my truck tire. Perfection, I thought. Then I hopped on the tractor and started to cut. I was clearing brush for a few hours. I think it was around 9 p.m. at that point, when I heard a similar, but far more terrifying and loud cry than the night before. It made me jump in my seat. I turned around and looked toward the noise, and sure enough, it was coming from the direction of that hole. I didn't feel brave enough to shut off the tractor and walk over there so I raised up the brush hog and headed over on the tractor itself. At least that way I felt a bit safer. Once I got close enough to see the hole, I swear I found several dozen marks on top of the soil that I had just packed. It looked like something had been digging in it, and I couldn't help but think that it was the same something I saw in jumping into that hole the night prior. I swallowed hard, feeling bad. Whatever it was tried to get back in the hole, back to its home, and now I'd covered it up. I took off my hat, letting the air hit the sweat on my head and cool me down. I figured it was just my job, and whatever it was could just find another hole or make a new one. I began to walk back toward the tractor. Halfway there, more cries rang out. 
This time, they were coming from the forest edge. It was shrill and rat-like, but it was far too loud to come from something as small as a rat, and whatever it was was fast, too. The cry would come from one portion of the woods, and after only four or five seconds, another cry from the same creature would ring out about fifty yards up in the tree line. I remember standing there thinking what the heck that could be. I definitely wasn't hearing things now, but due to the way the cry sounded, I told myself it was the world's largest field rat. These cries kept coming and coming for the remainder of the night. They frightened me so bad that I didn't work past eleven. Instead of clearing eighty-five percent of the brush, I managed to clear up to sixty, putting me well behind schedule. When I decided I was done for the day, I practically ran back to my truck. All the while, that thing out there just kept crying and crying. I started the truck and turned up the radio. A human voice would make me feel a bit more comfortable. Then I locked the doors and began to look around through the window. I kid you not, I saw something in the darkness of the tree line, maybe sixty yards away or so. Something tall and the color of early morning mist. I kicked my truck into gear, and I drove away, not sure if I wanted to keep doing this contract. Then again, the farmer had been nothing but nice to me, and I really, really needed the money. Plus, that farmer was well known out here, and word of mouth was something else I desperately needed. Throwing my hat at the dash, I realized I had to complete this job. I had to do it quick, and I had to do it right. The day after, I bought some Bluetooth headphones at Walmart. Took me a while to set them up right. I'm not exactly knowledgeable with phones or things like that, but I figured that would help me concentrate on my work. If that thing was getting noisy again, I could just ignore it. I had some Tim McGraw and Keith Urban downloaded to my phone, so I figured I could just listen to that. By 6.25pm that day, I was back at the field. I checked the hole to make sure it hadn't been dug up. It hadn't. I examined my surroundings and the tree line. Then I got on the brush hog. Finish it, I told myself. With an extra hour, I could probably cut the rest of the field, if nothing else got in the way. I put my Bluetooth headphones in my ears, picked a song, put it on shuffle, then I got rolling. And for the first four hours, it worked perfectly well but I had drastically underestimated the battery life of the headphones. They gave me a 15% battery life remaining warning, so I took them out and put them back in their little ovular charger. The moment I pulled one from my ear, I heard it. The crying coming from within the trees. I shuddered and looked around. I couldn't see it just yet, but it was out there, and it was still mad. I sighed hoping the charger for the headphones could charge them up real fast. For the next hour, I was on edge, cutting the overgrown grass. I found myself not only scanning the trees constantly, but also looking in the grass, as if something might be lurking in there. Even a professional football player could be well hidden in that grass. I couldn't really distract myself. No matter where my mind turned, it always came back to that thing crying in the woods. A few minutes later, the cries suddenly stopped. Now, I would have guessed I'd feel better after the cries finally died down, but right away I felt about ten times worse. 
I was so scared and on edge at that point that I turned the tractor off and just listened. There were bugs chirping and wind blowing over the grass. The sound of grass blades brushing against each other had me a bit twitchy. With the right gust of air, it almost sounded like something moving past the grass. Once I had thoroughly convinced myself I was just paranoid, I started up the tractor again and kept moving. One thought that really helped me was the idea that the tractor and brush hog were so loud that surely would scare away anything that could be out there. But at that point, I gotta be honest, I found myself missing the cries, because then at least I knew where that creature was, even if I didn't know what it was exactly. Then suddenly my tractor stalled. I couldn't get it to start. I was mad. I had a lot to do and I couldn't really afford to fix it, not without dipping into my savings, which were already low. Deep down, though, I saw this as an out. I could finish up clearing the brush in a couple of hours once I got it fixed the next day. Heck, I would even come by early, just to have a bit more daytime to fix the tractor and get the brush cleared. I had this idea in my head that once all the brush was cleared and things were more visible, I wouldn't be as scared. Unfortunately, that night, the way the tractor was angled, I'd either have to walk along the tree line or cut through the tall grass to make it back to my truck. Neither of these scenarios sounded good to me. So I just cut through the grass. A straight line would be much quicker of a walk. But not being able to see more than a few inches in front of me made me a bit more paranoid than I already was. I could have sworn I kept hearing something else moving through the grass as well. Just keep walking straight, I reminded myself. Just a few more yards and... Suddenly, I tripped over something. I almost fell on my face, but my hands reached out just in time to keep that from happening. Still, I cut my palms pretty bad. As I began to pick myself back up, I still felt the sensation of something at my leg. I hadn't just tripped over something. I'd been grabbed, and whatever it was, was still grabbing onto me. I looked toward my leg as the pressure built up further, causing an intense stinging pain at my ankle. When I looked towards my foot, I saw it, and I nearly screamed. A veiny, tan, four-fingered hand, ending in dark black nails, clung tight to my ankle. The moment that I wanted to scream, I instead instinctively pulled my leg away, and at the same time, whatever was holding on to me yanked. Luckily for me, this happened to cause the hand to slide a bit until it was over my shoe, which then came off and I was freed. I picked myself up and ran like a madman through the grass. I soon broke through to the cleared portion of the field, but I must have been turned around because I was by the tree line now. I looked over to my right, and the truck was there, now closer. It was only a twenty-yard run between me and safety, but the tall part of the grass would still be nearby, even next to my truck. Thanks to the pattern I was mowing in, I took off at a full sprint, limping awkwardly thanks to my missing shoe and injured ankle. What came next didn't surprise me. I basically expected it but it still horrified me. The sound of something bounding through the tall grass next to me, alongside me as I ran, 
I could tell just how much faster it was than me, and I couldn't help but wonder why it never lapped out and dragged me away. It could if it wanted to, but I made it to my truck. I flung open the door, slammed it shut, turned the key in the ignition, and drove home. There I sat in the dark interior of my truck, my ankle severely bruised, even further behind on my contract that I had to finish or I wouldn't be able to pay my bills. A grown man, nearly at tears. What was wrong with me? I brainstormed the entire drive home, praying that there weren't any cops at the regular speed traps, because I wasn't driving right at all, not in that panicked state. But my racing mind finally led me to an idea. My brother. My brother lived a couple of towns over, about an hour away, so it wasn't too close, but I was desperate, more than ever. I gave him a call that night. I apologized because he had been sleeping. Then I asked him if he'd join me on a job. I offered him half of the pay of the contract to help me finish it out, but I never told him the other half of his duty. To just be there and make me feel safe. You see, my brother had a sidearm and a concealed carry permit, so I would certainly feel safer with him being there. With double the manpower, I was able to finish up the grass the next day and clear out nearly all the stumps. I had to sacrifice half my pay, but I really did appreciate my brother coming by. Now, toward the end of that day, we had the choice of staying overtime, to just finish it up and call it quits for good, or come back the next day for a half day. In my head, doing a half day the next day meant a little bit more daytime to finish up, but then again, the idea of just getting it done that night felt better, so that's what we decided to do. We worked until about 5 a.m., and the worst that happened then was my brother coming to me when I had my headphones in and asking me what those weird sounds are. And yeah, it was the same sounds, the shrill cries that were rat-like. And now I know they weren't from a rat. I told him it was just a bird. He went back to work, not really interested to know what kind of bird it was. When we were finally done, we went over to Waffle House and celebrated. But my stomach was queasy. The idea that I'd put my brother in danger, too, just because I wanted to feel better, and I never told him about what was out there, made me feel a bit guilty. But maybe I'll share this story with him soon. I hope he takes it well. And I hope that farmer's out there and he's doing okay. Last I heard from him, that hole that I had packed got dug into, and is open for business once again. Attack at Midnight From Patrick I was in Littleton, Colorado, spring 2017. I worked at the Melting Pot Restaurant, which currently occupies an old three-story building that was built in the early 1900s as a Carnegie Library. There have been many documented cases of paranormal behavior at this location, and the restaurant was even featured on a ghost-hunting TV show. The most haunted area is located in the basement, in a little L-shaped cove that has five booth tables for dining. The cove was down two little stairs, and immediately when entering you had a four-top table on your left and a two-person table on your right. Past the four-top in the corner was a large round booth, and around the bend was two more four-top tables and a dead end. 
The last table in the cove was considered the most haunted table in the restaurant. Many times people would bring spirit contacting boards and different conjuring type things to try and evoke a spirit and sit in the last table to do just that. One day a co-worker and I were cleaning these tables late one night and he goes, Ow, dang, did you just scratch me? I hadn't touched him and I told him that. He lifts up his shirt and there are three large bleeding scratches going all the way down his back. He immediately freaks out, and soon after he quit, feeling as if this entity was trying to follow him home. A year later, I hadn't seen anything else unusual. One night around midnight, I started antagonizing the spirit in this area. Even after seeing that kid get scratched, I still wasn't convinced. So I was down there yelling out for something, saying something like, You don't exist. If you did, you would show yourself. I figured there wouldn't be an answer, so I went back to bussing my last tables for the night. I was carrying a bus tub down the back stairs and had to walk by this cove to get to the kitchen. I've been a server for years and never drop anything, let alone drop something out of a bus tub. Well, I go walking by the cove, and a metal fondue pot goes flying out of my bus tub down the two stairs and into the haunted cove. I continue to the kitchen to place down my bus tub. I then grabbed a towel to clean up the chocolate mess I'd made. At that point, I had forgotten about the antagonizing I had done an hour earlier. So I go charging into the L-shaped cove to clean up the chocolate fondue pot, that had somehow just leapt out of my bus tub and down the stairs. As soon as I enter, something grabs me by my right shirt sleeve, throwing me into the rock wall, immediately smashing my head into it. It leaves me with a goose egg bump and a large cut on my forehead. I was so startled, and I was bleeding everywhere at that point. I had to run to the bathroom to assess the situation. Sure enough, I found a three-inch gash and a large lump. That's when I recalled what I'd done earlier and realized it may have been a bad idea. I go upstairs and my co-workers say, Whoa, what happened to you? Looked like you saw a ghost. Telling me I was as white as could be and I looked scared. I tell them I think I was just attacked by a ghost. I honestly can't explain the pot flying out of my bus tub like that, and then an unseen force just slamming me into the wall. Well, the only explanation I can come up with is that the spirit caused me harm. So my warning to you would be, don't antagonize haunted places and the spirits there, unless you're ready for the repercussions. Working Solo Can Be Spooky, from Sean D. You wouldn't think that a sock factory would be a spooky place to work by yourself. The steam presses hiss, the thumps, the clinks, all these things can have an almost hypnotic rhythm. The rule of thumb there is that no one is allowed to work if they are the only ones that have shown up. This happens more than you think when you work the second shift, and there are only three people counting yourself on the crew. I didn't really know of the no-show rule 
until I'd already worked a solo shift myself. And after that one night, I had a sneaking suspicion why. I had been clocked in for nearly half an hour when my cell phone rang. The supervisor was on the other end. I won't be in, so when the other two get in, just board the socks. Which is what the process of steam pressing them is called. Do that for four hours, then after break, you're on bagging, and the other two will work repair. Well, neither work partner came in, and due to the... Rona, if anyone was feeling the tiniest bit ill, they weren't supposed to come in. They would have to take a sick day. Boarding solo wasn't permitted due to safety concerns, so I set up the bagging station. Now, bagging is a very easy job. It often causes me to lose track of time. I only noticed it was time for my break when I had a sudden and intense feeling I was being watched. I looked around and I spotted someone in the boiler cage. They were watching me. I couldn't get a clear look at their face, and oddly enough, despite the heat of the boiler, they were wearing a black hooded sweater. Add to that the mandatory face mask, the mystery watcher had almost total facial concealment. When I looked directly at them, they immediately pretended to be busy, checking the boiler. I kept a watchful eye on them on my way to the break room. I knew it could not have been an intruder, as employees need an access card just to get in the factory. After my break, I decided to check the boiler cage. Maybe I did just see one of the employees, perhaps a new employee. I could at least introduce myself to them. I was almost out of work orders to bag up, and I'd have free time to help them with anything they may need. When I reached the boiler, they were gone. So I just went back to work. Just like before, I would lose track of time and suddenly get an overwhelming feeling of being watched. When I looked over at the boiler cage, they were standing inside it, just staring at me. This time I reacted immediately, smiling as I approached them while saying hello. They exited the cage as I made my way over, so I went around some shelves hoping to meet them as they closed the gate behind them. When I made it to the gate, they were nowhere in sight. Not only that, but the gate was closed and padlocked. I was obviously confused. I didn't hear the gate open or close, and I definitely would have heard the padlock snapping shut. I looked around for the mystery person, but I didn't see them anywhere nearby. I finished my job that night, albeit a bit distracted from my constant glances at the boiler. As I left, I could feel someone watching me through a window. I didn't bother looking back. Instead, I just quickened my step. I don't think that I saw a spirit. I believe that I saw a living, breathing person. At least, that's exactly what it looked like. The factory isn't really that old. Not old enough to be haunted, best to my knowledge. Besides, a ghost wouldn't need a face mask, would they? The house I work at is kinda creepy. From Wayward Companion I work at a group home for autistic adults. Our house has five residents, and I work the third shift. The house itself is actually quite nice, 
a two-story, six-bedroom home in an affluent neighborhood. Honestly, it's a beautiful home. It's not even that old, built sometime in the late 80s or early 90s. But it is definitely haunted. Co-workers told me as much when I first started working there, almost two years ago. In fact, one of my co-workers was so freaked out by something that happened to her that she refused to go upstairs for any reason. Now, I work the third shift alone, which is nerve-wracking enough. I'm a girl on the shorter side and in charge of caring for five adult men, some of whom have occasional violent outbursts. It's not uncommon to get physically attacked or to have to deal with someone engaging in destructive or self-injurious behavior. That kind of stuff is just part of the job. Now add to that the weird, creepy things that happen, and you've got a terrifying combination. One of our guys sometimes gets up in the middle of the night. Typically, we would have to go see what they need. Usually, it's just a trip to the bathroom or a drink of water. Except for when one of our guys is up. Let's call him JJ. When JJ's up, it's sometimes a bit more, shall I say, unsettling. You see, we often find J.J. standing in front of his open closet, and he'll be uh, talking to it. The thing is, one night I saw something in the closet, an entity or shadow person. I could have gone on thinking it was just one of his eccentricities, had I not seen the blacker-than-black humanoid shape with glowing red eyes standing in his closet one night after I'd heard him get up and I went upstairs to put him back to bed. I'd like to say I was brave and went in to save him from whatever it was in his closet. But in all honesty, I just stood there in shocked horror for a few moments, while my brain tried to process what I was seeing. Then I noped it back down the stairs for the night. Then there are those doors which are alarmed, and we keep locked, because a few of our guys are runners who would wander off if they got outside unattended. Despite that, at least once a week, the garage door or the door to the patio just swings open by itself. Then there's the most recent event that happened only a few hours ago. Tonight, while sitting in the living room doing paperwork, I heard an almighty crash coming from the kitchen. I jumped up thinking one of the guys was up and had snuck into the kitchen. But when I went to check... No one was in there, and nothing was out of place. More disturbingly, after a quick check, I was completely freaked out by the fact that all the guys were soundly sleeping. The sound I'd heard had been extremely loud, so much so that the wall behind me shook. Not to mention all our guys are light sleepers. The lightest sleeper's bedroom is just off the kitchen, and yet he just slept through it soundly when he should have been wide awake. I have no explanation for what I'd heard. In fact, as I'm writing this, I feel a presence like someone is watching me, and I've got six hours to go before my shift ends. It wasn't human. This is more of a going-to-work-in-the-early-morning-slash-late-night kind of story. From Jason M., this took place during the winter of 2017. 
I work at a gas station in a small town in Northern California. I've got the opening shift at my work, which is 5 a.m. to 2 p.m. Now, I'd recently totaled my car after hydroplaning into a ditch, so I was left without a vehicle to drive to and from work until I got the insurance money to get a new one. Since my job is only about a mile and a half from my apartment, I decided it'd be good for me to get some exercise for the time being. So I started to walk to work in the mornings. The road was paved and fairly well-trafficked, but in the pitch-black darkness of 4.30 a.m., when I had to begin my commute, it was rare to see anyone driving down the road at all. So one especially cold morning... I began my walk to work along the road, as I usually did. About half a mile in, I always passed by a forested area next to the road. This part had no street lights or anything, so I used my powerful flood flashlight to light my way. As anyone might do in the dark, I was continuously using it to peer into my shadowed surroundings as I walked. Half a mile down the road, I began to hear something rustling in the bushes off to the side of the road up ahead of me. I began to feel as if I was being watched. I stopped and shone my light on the bush in question and just about jumped out of my skin when it emerged from the bushes. It was just a deer. As it crossed the street and hopped into the shrubs on the other side, I told myself to not be so jumpy and that nothing around here could really be a danger to me. If only I knew how wrong I was. About another half mile down the road, the feeling of being watched returned, but this time the hair on the back of my neck was standing straight up. As I tried to convince myself that it was just another deer, my light passed over some bushes a little ways into the tree line to my left, about fifty feet behind me. Keep in mind the next few events I'm going to describe all happened within a few split seconds. My light suddenly shone upon what seemed to be a crouching figure with its back to me, facing a bush. At first I thought it was a homeless man, but as I stopped walking and I shined my light directly at the crouching figure, I very clearly saw that, to my absolute horror, it wasn't human at all. Whatever it was, it appeared to be naked. It had no hair on its body, and its skin was very pale. Its limbs were unnaturally long and spindly. The thing looked like, if it stood up, it might be more than eight feet tall. Its fingers were very long and thin, too, and ended in sharp black points like claws. The second I shined my light over it, it quickly turned its head to look at me. Its eyes, they glowed like an animal's eyes do in the dark, like a cat's eyes or a deer's. I didn't get a great look at its face, but whatever it was, I knew it wasn't human. But it certainly wasn't an animal either, not a normal one. The moment it looked at me, I bolted down the road, and I didn't look back. Over my panicked gasping, I thought I heard it chasing me, which made me desperately push myself to go faster. Suddenly in the distance ahead of me on the road, a car's headlights appeared, 
and as I kept sprinting, the car soon passed me, going behind me and out of sight. I no longer heard that thing behind me, but I kept running anyway, and I didn't stop until I made it to work. Huffing and gasping for air, I arrived at work, and I told my coworker what had just happened. He didn't look so much surprised as he did concerned, and told me another coworker of mine had seen the same creature recently. He had described it to him exactly as I had, every last detail. Needless to say, I'm never going to walk to work in the dark again. I'll just call an Uber or something from now on. Whispers in the Dark From Patrol Officer I'm a security officer for a company in Southern California. We actually work alongside the sheriff's department in the cities that we service. As a patrol officer, my job in this specific company is essentially the same as that of a police officer. Unlike your typical observe-and-report security guards, we respond to calls ranging from simple trespassers to burglary, domestic abuse, kidnapping, and shots fired. Hence the officer in the title. I've been in a couple of foot-and-vehicle pursuits. That's just the way we operate, which is why we've worked alongside the local sheriff's offices. Now that you all know what we do, let me get to the story. I used to work the late beat before being switched to days. When this story happened, I was working from 2200 to 0600 in the morning. I remember driving around the city in my patrol vehicle, listening to our two-way radio for any calls when I got one in my district. A burglary alarm on the north side of the city, out in the desert. It had to be around one in the morning when I was sent to check it out. As soon as I pull into the street leading to the property, I rolled in dark, which just means I shut off all the lights. The building used to be an onion packaging factory, with hangars on the west side of the property. But now, it was abandoned, and we were contracted to watch it. I've been in there alone many times when I checked it twice a night, but never had an experience up until this night. Keep in mind that the property does not have working lights at all. Anyway, I pull onto the west side of the property, visually inspecting the exterior perimeter when I observed a slightly open door. I key up on my radio. Lincoln 1 to control. Dispatch, go ahead. This is Lincoln 1. Be advised I have an open door on the west side of the hangars. Can you roll an additional unit to my location? I stand by my vehicle, smoking a cigarette under the drizzle that is rare for Southern California. I like the rain, though. The wind was also blowing pretty hard this night, from what I remember. Anyway, about five minutes later, my partner arrives, who also happens to be my really good friend outside of work. We pull our guns and flashlights and go inside. The first thing you always noticed when entering is the stench of onion. I mean, it was so pungent that you could taste it through your nose. The hangars we were clearing are huge, dark, empty, and filled with that rotten smell. This is where things get creepy. We can hear the light drizzle hit the sheet metal, the wind blowing through whatever cracks they find. And it happens. We heard footsteps on the roof of the hangars. 
I look at my partner and say, What the heck? These hangars don't have access to the roof. How did they get up there? He replies, I don't know. Call it in. Lincoln 1 to control. Be advised we hear footsteps on the roof. We are code 6, 1023 until further. Which pretty much means we're out on investigation. Stand by until further notice. Dispatch acknowledges and we walk through the building, checking all corners until we get outside. We check the perimeter of the building and just like I thought, no access to the roof. Plus, it's raining. Who the heck would be up there? Anyway, we put it off on the wind. We check everything possible and call it Code 4, or All Good. As we're walking back through the hangars we just cleared, since it's the only way to exit to get back to our vehicles, the creepiest thing happens. Now, I've never been a believer in the paranormal, and I always rolled my eyes when I would watch ghost shows on TV, and they would say they would hear whispering, but could never make it out. Well, I kid you not, my partner and I heard whispering as if multiple voices were doing it simultaneously, and even though we heard it clear as freaking day, I couldn't make it out. My partner and I freeze in our tracks and just stare at each other. We pull our guns again, flashlights shining all over the walls. I call in a code six again, and we start to clear the property once more. We knew what we heard was not normal, but we had to treat it as someone possibly being in here that we missed. This is when all heck breaks loose. Doors begin slamming everywhere. Footsteps on the roof and whispering can all be heard, and then, all of a sudden, it stops. My partner and I just stare at each other, and without saying a word, we just walk outside with our guns in hand. I can't say we were scared, but we were definitely shocked and amazed. I call in a secondary code four. I stand outside with my partner and look at him. I say, we'll just blame it on the wind. He looks at me and nods. That was the last night I ever went to that place, before my promotion to corporal, and I switched to day shifts. I still don't believe in many ghost stories that are shared, but you can rest assured that even I don't believe it was the wind that night. There's no way in hell. If you're gonna be alone in abandoned places, or in the dark, you might as well get paid for it, right? Well, sometimes even money isn't enough to endure the creatures, phantoms, and creeps that wait in the hollow corridors and dark hallways of a security guard's workplace. So let's see if you can survive the night with these allegedly true security guard horror stories. The first few are new, and some are a blast from the past. So enjoy, and be sure to share your scary experiences with me at darkstories.org. I'd love to hear stories from national forests, being lost in the woods, and werewolf sightings. Now, let's begin. A Dire Confession From C-Note 78 
I work as a transit security officer in Vancouver, British Columbia. My job entails dealing with problems on the bus. If someone is drunk and causing a problem, or if someone is passed out and not waking up, we also rode the buses to check to make sure people pay their fares and are not cheating the system. Anyway, on this particular night, which was a graveyard shift, as we work from 7.30pm to 5.30am, I had ridden in one of our late-night buses from downtown to the suburbs of Surrey, which was about a 90-minute bus ride. We got through the night without any hitches. My partner and I were in the patrol car, heading back to the office to finish off our paperwork for the night, then clock out. My partner was driving, and I was the passenger. It was about 4.45 a.m. then, and it was in the fall, so it was still dark out. That's when I see this guy standing on the side of the road, just staring at the cars passing by. As our car is about to pass by, I make eye contact with him. I still remember those beady little eyes of his. His eyes looked left and right and back and forth when, all of a sudden, he runs out into traffic. Luckily, my partner sees him and swerves to avoid running him over. I tell him to pull over the car. Then we run over to where the guy was standing as he's walking back to the curb. I'm upset at this guy, obviously, as we almost hit him with the car. I began to yell at him, asking him what the heck his problem is. I wanted to know if he knew how close he was to getting killed. It was at this point I got a good look of his eyes, and I can see that the guy is not all there. I changed my approach and asked him what was going on. Maybe we could help him if he tells us what's happening. I'm thinking this guy is on some heavy drugs, or has a mental illness of some kind, or both. The man then looks at me and my partner, and says, I need to talk to a justice of the peace. I need to confess. My partner and I look at each other, both with confirming looks that this guy is crazy, and maybe we should call the cops. I ask him, What's going on, buddy? What do you want to confess? The guy refuses to talk to anyone except for a justice of the peace or judge, and again says he needs to confess. My partner starts to call it in to dispatch, as I try to get some more details and a name, a date of birth, address, etc. As I'm trying to get more information from him, another wave of cars begins to approach. They would be passing by momentarily. The guy just keeps repeating, I need to confess. I need to confess. Then he takes another shot at running in front of the passing cars. The fight was on, and lucky for us, the guy wasn't very large in stature. Maybe five foot five and 140 to 150 pounds. I was well over his size, and I had a partner for backup, who was fit and an active athlete. So the guy was easily subdued, and since we felt he was at risk of harming himself or someone else, we decided to handcuff and arrest him for safety until the police arrived. Try as I might, I wanted to get him to tell me what he wanted to confess, but he kept wanting to talk only to the justice of the peace. 
The police showed up shortly afterward and took the male into custody. This happened in 2016, and it still bothers me to this day. What did he want to confess? Maybe there was a house with a dead body somewhere, or maybe he was just out of his mind. We'll never know, I guess. The Shadow Man from Jack Mustard In the spring of 2011, when I began working as a security guard at a major tech company, one of the other officers made a remark to me before he left the building. Don't let any odd sounds get to you, he said. I told him most sites have unusual noises and they don't really bother me. I'm unlikely to encounter anything of a supernatural nature here, I said. Oh, I don't know about that, he replied. Being constructed in 2001 with its data center and telecoms, the tech company's site had the look and feel of something off a Star Wars set. It was a new high-tech structure with no history and no known tragedy. Besides me, the only energy there was computer energy. For nearly the first three years of my job, my initial assessment was proven correct. But there was one night in 2012, when I was reading a blog, I caught a glimpse out of the corner of my eye of a pitch-black figure flashing across the second floor. Near the security desk is a large circular opening where one can see the walkway on the second floor. It looked like a robber dressed in black with a face mask. Except it moved fast. It moved faster than any human could move. I brushed it off as nothing to be concerned about and continued to read my blog. I never mentioned it to anyone, and I forgot about it. I didn't see it head-on, so it didn't really exist to me. It was a figment of my late-night imagination. Fast forward about one year, on the 3 a.m. patrol... I had an encounter far more real and chilling than the previous one. During the hourly patrols, the four telecom rooms and the data center have to be checked to ensure the computers do not overheat. To reach one of the telecom rooms, one has to traverse a dark corridor, which opens into a dimly lit office area. As I came out of the corridor, in my peripheral vision to my right, I saw a black, translucent figure... The figure stood approximately six feet tall. One could discern a head, neck, torso, and limbs, and it appeared to have short dreadlocks. I turned to look at it, and actually saw it straight on for about two seconds. It was black, faceless, but definitely real. I jumped backward and let out what seemed to be a loud yell. No one could hear me. The shadowy figure stepped back and blended itself into the background. The atmosphere lightened and returned to normal. Needless to say, the main lights went on and stayed on early that morning. When the security supervisor relieved me that morning, I asked him if any tragedies had occurred in the building or near the site. I considered him a reliable source to ask, as he had worked at the tech company since its opening. He said that no one had died on sight, and he didn't remember anyone with short dreadlocks ever working there. Could something have happened prior to the construction of the building? Further research into the history of the place turned up nothing, 
to this day, I'm still uncertain as to who or what the mysterious Shadow Man or Shadow Men were. The Night of the Creeps From 19 Delta Scout College is a time of great paradox. You spend a good portion of your day in class, and if you want to pass your classes, you need to spend a good portion of your night studying. Oh, and if you do need money, you'll also need to find a job. And heaven forbid that girl who took you home from the party now thinks you two are a couple. It was a constant juggling act trying to balance school, study, work, girls, and sleep because devoting too much time for one took away from the others. My parents weren't rich, so I didn't want to ask them for money, and I wasn't ready yet to join the military and let Uncle Sam pay for my college tuition. So I had to get a job. I thought I'd found the perfect job, one which paid me fairly decently while allowing me to study and do homework at the same time. Yep, I became a security guard. It wasn't a bad gig, the site I was assigned to was an office building, which was located across the street to an FBI branch office in a low-crime area of the city. I got there at four in the evening and escorted office workers to their cars, until the building closed at five. After five, I would do a few security patrols around the building, letting the cleaning crew into the building at eight in the evening and letting them out at midnight when my shift ended. In between that time, I was free to study and do homework from my desk inside the security office. I was basically on my own, and for six months at the site, I only saw my security supervisor four times. Like I said, it was a sweet gig. Then one Friday before my shift was to start, I got a call from the security supervisor asking me if I wouldn't mind working the graveyard shift for a few weeks out at a site located in what was known as the Great Dismal Swamp. The hours were from 11 at night to 6 in the morning, and because the site was so remote, the job would pay an additional $3 an hour. I quickly agreed. I could use that extra cash. Since I got off at 6 in the morning and my first class started at 9, I had plenty of time to get ready for school. I met my security supervisor at the main office at 11 that night, and once again I was not impressed by him, which is why I was happy that I rarely saw him. He was middle-aged with a beer gut, absolutely no muscle mass on him whatsoever. His hair was, in my opinion, too long and scraggly to inspire confidence in someone who was supposed to be a security guard and he had a bushy, naughty movie stash, if you know what I'm saying. His hairy arms had really tacky-looking tattoos, which he said he got while he was in the Navy, but they looked like tattoos that you'd get while serving time in prison. In fact, if it wasn't for the security badge and uniform that he wore, which was disheveled and unironed, his picture looked like it should have adorned the walls of the post office. When I met him, he was visibly drunk, and he smelled of alcohol. He told me to follow him, and he got into his old brown and primer gray Dodge Al Bundy-looking mobile that had magnetic signs on the rust-colored doors that read, A1 Security Services. I got into my brand new Chevy Camaro, which I paid for during my senior year in high school, from money I saved working part-time jobs since I was 15. I then followed him as he screeched out of the parking lot and onto the highway. 
It was a Friday night, and this being a huge military town, it was military payday. So the highway was packed, but traffic was moving quickly as we took the exit towards the city of Chesapeake, which was built on the Great Dismal Swamp. We were on the road for a good 45 minutes, going deeper and deeper into farm country, passing several rivers and streams. The traffic had all but vanished long ago, and the streetlights were few and far between. Still, we hadn't reached the site. I was seriously thinking that this guy was bringing me out here to kill me, dump my body into the swamp. A suspicion that got stronger when he turned off the main two-lane road and onto a gravel road, which wound between the viney trees and weeping willows. The narrow road ended at a dilapidated parking lot, at the end of which stood what appeared to be an abandoned two-story building. Behind the run-down-looking building was a canal, which connected to the Elizabeth River. One tilted light pole holding two light bulbs, which flickered on and off, illuminated the parking lot, and aside from the old building with vines crawling up its sides, there was nothing else in the area, except dark, foreboding trees, swamp, and probably the ghosts of past security guards, which this guy took out here to kill. To my surprise, however, the creepy old abandoned building was well lit from the inside. Come on, kid, said my security supervisor. Let's get you inside. It's not good to stay outside here for long. Huh? I said. <clears throat> Nothing, he answered. As we continued walking, I saw several other run-down structures next to the building, though these were not illuminated and hung in the shadows. As we got closer to the building, I saw it had been vandalized, with several windows broken out and spray-painted graffiti on the walls. There was also a slightly foul smell in the air, like wet, rotting vegetation mixed with sweaty gym socks that were left inside your gym bag in the trunk of your car for a week. This used to be an old paper mill a few years back, said my security manager as he opened the door into the brightly lit main lobby. The door hadn't been locked. The mill went out of business and just sat here until it was bought by a Dutch company that wants to start it back up sometime next year. Till then, they want us to keep watch over the facility to discourage vandals and such. We walked down the main corridor, which was littered with broken glass, leaves, and more graffiti, past a broken set of double doors and towards a room at the end of the hallway. Doesn't look like there's been any vandals here for a while. I observed as our footsteps echoed across the tomb-like building. Probably not, my supervisor replied. We got to the room at the end of the corridor, which ended up looking like an old boiler room with rusty pipes and gauges and whatnot. A large table stretched across the wall where windows looked out across the canal outside. Three old black padded chairs were at the table. Well, here we are, said my supervisor. Be careful when you do your roving patrols, as there may be some raccoons or other animals which have made this building their home. And watch out when you walk around outside for snakes and whatnot. Did you bring a flashlight? Uh, no, I replied. I wasn't told that I needed one. Mm, okay, he said. Well, let me get out of here. If you run into trouble, just call 911. 
Then call the night shift supervisor. Keep the lights on, and I'll see you in the morning. Uh, wait, I said. This seems like a pretty nice site. Peaceful, nobody to bug you, and you get paid extra? What's the catch? My supervisor looked annoyed. No catch, he said, leaving. Just can't get anyone to stay on the site. Roy, the new guy, quit this morning after his shift here ended. Really? I asked. But before I could say anything else, my supervisor added, Oh, one more thing. Ned's running late, but he'll be here with you later. Remember, keep the lights on. He walked out before I could say anything else, and I can't say I was sorry to see him go. I looked around the boiler room and saw that there was a coffee pot and an old, dirty microwave at the end of the table that I guessed the previous security guards had been using. There was also an old, touch-tone phone that I assume I could call the police with if Jason Voorhees decided to rise out of the swamp and hack me to death. I figured I'd wait for a little bit and get settled in before going back out to my Camaro to get my schoolwork. If I finished my assignment tonight, I'd be free for the rest of the weekend to use my Camaro for what it was intended for, to be a chick magnet. I sat on one of the rusty old black padded chairs and nearly fell over backwards as the back support was broken and gave out. The creaking noise seemed to echo down the hallway. I rolled it aside and tested another chair, finding that that one was fairly stable. I sat down and scanned the table some more. I found the security duty log from the night before that was on a clipboard. The report from the new guy, Roy, was still on it, which meant that he never returned to the main office to turn it in. Apparently, he just hauled tail out of there this morning. Roy's printing was neat and tidy, all in block letters and easy to read. I wondered why he would just leave the log here when he knew he should have turned it in. That's how a guard gets paid. With nothing else to do, I read the log entries. Midnight arrived on site. Security supervisor instructs me to ensure that the lights remain on in the building. Advised to call 911 if there's trouble. 0030 hours. Conduct security patrol around inside a building. Several lights flickering on and off in upstairs corridors. Zero one hundred. Lights in parking lot flickered on and off. Thought I saw movement outside. Went to investigate but found nothing. Zero two hundred fifteen. Lights in the security room have gone out. Lights in main hallway downstairs flickering on and off. Going to look for breaker box. Zero two hundred thirty. Cannot find breaker box, but I thought I saw someone outside looking through a window in the security room. Going to investigate. 0250. There's definitely someone outside. Called to the person, but when I got around to where he was standing, he was gone. The last entry was sometime after that. I'm not sure what time it was exactly, because Roy didn't write it down. However, Roy's handwriting was no longer neat and uniform but shaky, almost as if he panicked. It simply said, All lights completely out. That's not a person looking into the window. I'm out of here. I tossed the clipboard back onto the table. So what, I thought. 
Did a badger scare you away? The lights in the room flickered for a second, but came back on. I thought I saw something at the window out of the corner of my eye, but I dismissed it as a trick of the flickering lights. I leaned back in my chair, wondering when the other guard was supposed to be here. I usually worked by myself. I didn't know too many other guards. I'd heard the name Ned before, but usually as Old Bloody Ned. I wondered if that was the same guy. I decided it was a good time to do a patrol around the building, to get a feel for the place. I used the term patrol loosely, as it sounded more professional than having fun exploring a creepy old abandoned paper mill. As it turned out, as far as abandoned office buildings go, it was pretty unremarkable. Downstairs had a cafeteria and break room with long aluminum tables and empty snack and soda machines. There was a front office and a conference room with empty desks and filing cabinets filled with old invoices, shipping and receiving documents, and pay stubs. By the way, if you used to work for an old paper mill in Chesapeake that went out of business, you might want to know that they still have old pay documents that have your bank account info still on them inside old filing cabinets. Anyway, the upstairs had two halls lined with offices and a storeroom, which had cleaning supplies and a set of metal stairs, which led to the roof and the air conditioners. Dust and cobwebs covered the corners and walls, as well as shattered glass that hadn't been disturbed for ages. And aside from the lights flickering on and off occasionally, there really wasn't anything particularly spooky about the place. I then decided to go back out to my car to grab my school backpack and the dinner that I'd packed. Two double-decker smoked ham and bologna sandwiches, with Swiss cheese and the right amount of spicy mustard and mayonnaise with a tall can of Pringles chips and a couple of ice-cold Red Bulls. This was going to be yummy, as I'd only eaten lunch about twelve hours earlier. I was famished. I returned to the boiler room, tossed my backpack to the side, and laid out my dinner, anxious to sink my teeth into those delicious sandwiches. I first wrote a quick entry into the security log. 0130. Completed security patrol around building. Lights flickering occasionally, but otherwise all secure. Just as I turned to grab a sandwich... All the lights in the building went out. I sat there in pitch blackness for about two seconds, annoyed that I'd have to look for the breaker box when the lights flickered and came on dimly. The lights were flickering when I heard a shuffling noise coming from the main hallway. Slowly, I got up, easing the seat back quietly in order to hear better. Yeah... There definitely was something shambling down the hallway towards me. By then, the lights had come on completely again, as I approached the door to the boiler room and opened it. I was quickly confronted by a terrifying apparition. He was tall and skinny with a pot belly, pale, white, and old with long wisps of white hair dangling down from his wrinkled, liver-spotted bald head. His nose and ears were large, and broken teeth lined his open mouth. The apparition stared at me through crazy-looking eyes. You must be Ned, I said, reading the name on his dirty uniform. His uniform looked worse than my supervisor's, and Ned smelled of cigarettes and alcohol. That's me, boy, said Ned, pushing past me and walking towards the table. 
Old Bloody Ned, they call me. Sorry I'm late. My son had to go pick me up after the bar closed so that I could get here. Ned slumped down on the seat I had been sitting in. He'd obviously worked this site before. Yeah, they sent me here to keep you company, boy. It appears all you young folks are too afraid to be out here in the swamps by yourselves. Ah, oh, sandwiches. Ned picked up one of my delicious double-decker smoked ham and bologna sandwiches with Swiss cheese and just the right amount of spicy mustard and mayonnaise, and began chomping down on it. Hey, that's my din- You know why this place chases off so many people, said Ned, ignoring me. Because of you, I said, slumping down on the broken chair. Don't mess with me, boy, retorted Ned, chunks of bread flying out of his mouth as he spoke. I swear kids today have no class. No, boy. Take a look out the window. Across the canal. You see all them trees out there? Uh, nope. I see the reflection of some old guy eating my dinner in the window and a whole lot of black night. Dang it, boy. Well, if you could see out there, back behind them trees is an Indian graveyard. Back before the white man came, this land used to belong to the Chesapeake Indians. That's me, boy. I'm part Chesapeake Indian. Okay. Assuming that you're telling me the truth, the canal is pretty wide, and the trees are far across the bank. That would put the graveyard pretty far from here. They moved the markers, but they left the bodies here, boy. Here, right where they built this paper mill. They say it went bankrupt because they angered the spirits of my ancestors. I rolled my eyes at this drunken old creep. Like in that movie? Mm, what movie? He said, now opening my can of Pringles. That movie where they moved the headstones but left the bodies. And that little girl got sucked into the TV. And then a stuffed clown tried to drag that little boy under the bed. Ned looked at me questioningly. Are you on drugs, boy? Exasperated, I grabbed my other sandwich and my Red Bulls, then rolled the chair to the far end of the table where I'd thrown my backpack. At least I could get some schoolwork done. I took out one of my extremely overpriced textbooks and turned my back on Ned. I tried to get in the zone to do some homework. You afraid of blood, boy? said Ned. Because I can't stand boys who are afraid of blood. I always say you don't deserve to call yourself a man if you're afraid of blood. Heck, you may not deserve to live if you're afraid of blood. I slowly turned, now determined to keep an eye on this insane old man. Uh, no, I don't really spend too much time obsessing about blood, Ned. That's the problem with you young kids these days. All weak and pathetic. I was in Vietnam, boy. We rolled around in blood and guts every day. Blood, boy. Buckets and buckets of blood. My father did two tours of duty in Vietnam. He was with the Marines, and he never talked about rolling around in buckets of blood. Bah! Ned exclaimed, waving his hands dismissively. Blood isn't death. Blood is life. I hunt, you know. 
mostly deer, and every time I hunt, I take the blood of my kills and I put it in a metal tub. Then I get all naked and climb into the tub. I absorb the life of my kills in that tub, and I take the spirit of the deer by drinking its blood. Well, I'm not hungry, ever again, I said, pushing my sandwich towards Bloody Ned. When my kid got old enough, I taught him how to hunt, too. When he got his first deer kill, we drained the blood into a bucket, and I made my son pour the blood over his head. Blood, baby. Blood. <laughs> With all Ned's talk of blood and guts, I could feel myself getting nauseous. You look kinda white there, boy. You ain't afraid of a little blood, are you? No, I said, getting up on wobbly feet. I'm going on a patrol. Get some fresh air. Don't let them ghosts get you, boy. <laughs> Cackled Ned as I left the room. Sweating with spots appearing in my eyesight, I staggered down the hallway and stepped outside, feeling instantly better. Where in the world did they dig up that vampire? I walked to the parking lot, under the flickering light pole, and took deep breaths until the horrific images that Ned implanted in my head faded away. It was deathly still, with the calming sounds of water rippling down the canal, mingled with the songs of frogs and crickets. Suddenly, the street light went out, and all sounds seemed to cease. Even the lights coming from the building seemed to flicker and dim. Without a flashlight, there was no point in being outside any longer. Reluctantly, I began walking back to the building, back to where Ned was at. I decided that if he was still crazy when I got there, I would move to the cafeteria area and spend the rest of the shift there. As I walked toward the building, across the dark parking lot, I couldn't help but feel like I was being watched. That made me not like Ned all the more with his stories of Indian ghosts and burial grounds. The lights were still flickering as I walked down the main corridor to the boiler room. The flickering lights would make it hard to do homework, but fortunately they usually didn't flicker for very long. By the time I made it to the boiler room, the lights were back on. Ned was still in his seat, facing outside toward the window. I'm back, Ned, I said, but he didn't move. Uh, Ned? I stood in front of him looking down. Ned was slumped down in the chair, eyes closed and completely still. Ned, I said again, looking to see if his chest was rising and falling, and it wasn't. Uh, Ned! I leaned forward, attempting to put my hand on his chest to feel for a heartbeat. Blood. Ned cackled as he smacked his lips, dreaming, getting comfortable in his drunken stupor. Blood. <laughs> He said again as he began snoring. God dang it, Ned. Then the lights went out completely. I stood in darkness for a second, noticing that the temperature had dropped. The hair on the back of my neck raised as I slowly turned around, feeling that eerie feeling again that I was being watched. Outside the window, hands pressed against the glass... There was what appeared to be a very, very white little boy, staring at me. 
Though he was ghostly white, he appeared to be Latino or Native American. Short hair looking like it was cut in a bowl-cut fashion, framed two abnormally large eyes, colored pitch black, and his mouth was wide open as if in a silent scream. As I stood there, too shocked and terrified to move, the most ridiculous thought came into my mind. You aren't nearly as creepy as old bloody Ned behind me. Though I couldn't see his eyes, I knew that the little boy was staring right through me. Slowly, he began to fade away, as if being called back or being swallowed by the darkness until he disappeared. Soon, even his little handprints on the window were gone. When the boy faded away, the lights immediately came on. Strangely, even though I was terrified, I didn't sense anything malicious coming from the apparition. I took my backpack to the abandoned cafeteria in order to do my schoolwork, thinking that if the little boy had a problem with us, he could come back and get old Bloody Ned first. In fact, I thought, please get old Bloody Ned. I was working on my assignment for so long that I didn't realize it was almost time for shift change. To my surprise, my security supervisor came into the building at around 15 minutes before then. Old Bloody Ned was asleep the whole time until shift change, when he finally woke up. My security supervisor shambled down the corridor, smelling of alcohol. His eyes were bloodshot and he was obviously hungover. Old Bloody Ned awoke and stumbled over to him. Hey, son. Old Bloody Ned said. Son? Hey, Pa, my supervisor said. I brought the car for you, Dad. Ugh, I thought, that figures. Old Bloody Ned is my insane supervisor's dad. How'd your shift go? My supervisor asked. Ned pointed at me. This little boy spent the night shaking in his pants, son. Heck, I couldn't keep him awake through his shift. He's a freaking coward. My supervisor looked at me with disdain. Boy, you're a pathetic sack of lazy crap, ain't ya? Not really, I said. Old Bloody Ned got into the old rusty Dodge and drove away, saying, I'll be back to pick you up at one o'clock. As Ned drove away, I turned to my supervisor. Hey, man, I have a suggestion. My supervisor rolled his eyes. What do you want, you cowardly little college boy? I let his remarks slide off me as I said, Look, this is a pretty easy sight. During the graveyard shift, there doesn't need to be two people here. When I come back tonight, Ned shouldn't be here. The Rat, submitted by Soli Americas. Around 1980, I had just gotten out of active duty service with the U.S. Air Force, and I decided to stay at my father's house in Massachusetts until I could find a place of my own. It wasn't easy trying to find a job, but soon I landed a security guard position with a big security company. This company had a contract to provide service for a big electronics manufacturer about 20 miles from my father's place. I had left the military with an honorable discharge and an old beat-up Chevy Nova and little else to my name, so I really needed the job. 
I drove my old car to the electronics company, where they gave me a baggy uniform and a big flashlight. My shift was to be from 11 p.m. to 7 in the morning. I was given a tour of the buildings by the administration supervisor, which took nearly two hours. Let me tell you a bit about these buildings I was supposed to wander through all night. The place was a turn-of-the-century, massive, three-story brick mill that was originally built to manufacture textiles. It also had a huge basement and another smaller warehouse-like building across the street. The main building easily took up a city block and was one of the biggest structures in the small city. The interior had been renovated to accommodate offices, laboratories, manufacturing space, and other work areas. It was pretty much a maze in there, and the place stunk of chemicals for electroplating electronic components. It wasn't my idea of the best job in the world, but it was a start. I felt that if I put up with it in the meantime, that I might be able to move up in the company itself. That way I'd be all set. The building across the street was used by the electronics manufacturer to store things like packaging materials, old furniture, and other assorted junk. There were two ways to get into that building, either go outside and cross the busy street or go through an old tunnel underground that ran under the street. It was part of the guard's rounds to inspect the big building and the building across the road several times every night. I've always been a night person anyway and have always sought jobs where I could work alone. I hate having a boss hovering over my shoulder every minute and I hate co-workers complaining and gossiping all around me. So checking through the dimly lit buildings was no problem for me and it wasn't really scary for me. The worst was just having to call the cops a couple of times because kids either tried to sneak into the ground floor breaking bottles outside the front door or they would do graffiti on the outside walls. Nothing really major or extraordinary. Not yet, anyway. What always bothered me, though, was that dang building across the street. It was a ragged-looking building. It looked to be even older than the main building. It had filled stone walls with big steel double doors in front, and no windows. One of the steel doors had a smaller door in the middle, and that's where we usually went to do our checks. When you opened the door, you had to go down about eight stone steps to get to the warehouse floor. The filled stone walls were crumbling, and in some places, you could actually see through the cracks between the stones. I'd been told that sometimes drunks or homeless people had managed to get in there, either by breaking the small door or because someone had forgotten to lock it. I was warned to keep an eye out for these people, and if I saw any, to just get away from them, then call the cops if I found them in there. Part of my responsibility was not only to protect things, but to keep myself safe as well. Now, usually I preferred to cross the street to get to the other building, but one night, it was snowing heavily, and the wind was wailing like crazy, so I decided to use the tunnel underground. The tunnel was about five feet wide and easily seven feet high, it was made of cobblestones that were always wet, and the place was colder than a freaking refrigerator. The tunnel was just a straight line across the street, but underneath, and there were small dead-end passages off to the left that only went about ten feet before they stopped. I have no idea if that was all that was left of some other tunnel that connected to it, 
or if that dead end had some other purpose. Anyway, I started through the tunnel, which had no lights, so I was carrying my big flashlight, and it was blazing a path through the tunnel. I was on my way to check the warehouse. I got about halfway down the 40-foot tunnel, when a noise made me stop and listen. It was the sound of a scrabbling noise that stopped me in my tracks. I'd always suspected there might be rats down in the mill's basement and the tunnel, but I hadn't seen any in the two months I'd been working here. I slowly began to move my flashlight back and forth to each side of the tunnel, keeping an eye out for anything that might be moving. It didn't take long to see eyes being reflected back at me, eyes that were a mix of green and yellow in the light, and behind them was a large and dark silhouette, and then I saw it move, and I knew right away what it was. It, it was a rat, a rat bigger than any rat I've ever seen, even in the movies. This thing was as big as a large dog, no joke. It looked like it weighed 400 pounds easy, and had very dark gray skin with some white under its chin, and its eyes were huge too. In proportion, they were far bigger than they should have been. I kept my light on it as it began to step into the middle of the tunnel, still staring directly at me. Now, I'm five foot eight, and I was raised near a swamp. I've seen my fair share of rats, but this was a completely different beast, and I mean that literally. In seconds time, I decided that my security guard paycheck did not cover confrontations with monsters, so I took a step back from this abomination, never taking my eyes off of the thing or my light. If that thing wanted the tunnel to itself, it could have it. Then the way a curious smaller rat would, this creature, suddenly stood up on its hind legs, bringing its height to about my chest area, and showed me a mouthful of seriously needle-sharp teeth. Then it made this disturbingly ear-grating, high-pitched hissing sound. I had no doubt it was a you-shall-not-pass threat, and I took it very much to my pounding heart. I wasn't going to come any closer. Slowly, I was backing up, never letting the creature out of my sight, until my back touched the tunnel door into the main building. And in one quick motion, I was out of there. Luckily, that evil thing just stood there the whole time, watching me retreat. The only mention I made of this confrontation was to the afternoon guard I relieved when I came on the next night. I was curious and a bit disturbed so I just asked him if he had ever seen any rats in the tunnel. He said he didn't like going through the tunnel, so he never used it. Then he made a joke about being afraid of rats, and I just shrugged it off. So I decided I would avoid using that tunnel as well. I didn't want to risk running into that thing again. Only a few days later, this same guard was doing his last round, around 11 p.m., he went across the street to check the warehouse. He discovered that the small door that we used for entry was broken open, but being the brave fellow he was, he decided to go in anyway to check it out. He told me that he went down the stairs and took a few steps across the floor. He saw what he thought looked like a man lying on his side on the floor with his face turned away from him. 
The guard, of course, assumed that it was just another drunk or homeless man because the man appeared to be dressed in dirty old clothes. Then he heard a strange crunching, sticky noise as he called it, and he took a step forward to the man on the floor to see what he was doing to make that noise. As the guard approached, he said a massive rat, bigger than a dog, stood up from behind the man's body. It stood on its hind legs and jumped over the man, charging the guard right away, knocking the flashlight out of his hand and biting him straight through his glove. The guard screamed and said he threw the beast off of him and stumbled up the stairs and out the door slamming it shut behind him. He ran back across the street to call the cops and an ambulance. I arrived just as the ambulance was leaving, so I never saw the man my coworker had found on the floor, but I was told he was all right. He had just passed out drunk on the floor. The rat had found him and began chewing on his hands and fingers. It apparently started on his face and neck as well. He had permanent scarring from the event. I'm just glad that I wasn't the one who had to see it. The man was pretty messed up after that event, and my coworker quit the next day, and of course went to get anti-rabies and vaccine shots. I can't say I blame him. That would be enough to chase me away as well. In fact, I didn't stay there very long afterwards, and I moved to another state for a better job. A few years later, my brother, who had worked with explosives while in the army, told me that he got a job at the same mill, the mill where I met the monstrous rat. The electronics manufacturer was no longer there, and the new owners wanted the first floor removed to make a high space for some other kind of business. My brother set explosives and dropped the first floor into the basement in what I was told was a pretty spectacular show. A few minutes after the floor went down, my brother told me he heard what sounded like gunshots, so he went to the corner of the building to look down the alleyway to see what was going on. There were two cops down there, my brother said, who were part of a detail to keep people away during the demolition. Their guns were drawn and smoking. They were aiming towards an open bulkhead door into the basement. My brother asked them what the heck just happened, and one of the cops shrieked at him, saying some freaking nightmare of a giant rat had started coming out of that door and they shot at it. My brother went to look, but he couldn't find any such rat. But he said he was glad that he didn't see one because he really hates rats. Night Shift Security Guard Submitted by Aaron I worked as a security guard for a few years after moving to a small city in British Columbia. It was a well-paying job, and night shifts were more my thing since I was kind of an insomniac. I had just turned 20 and was now 6 foot 3 and 230 pounds. Just to give you some detail about myself, I was a bit of an intimidating guy, but everyone knew I was a sweetheart, and I never caused any drama with people. I prefer to be alone myself. My coworkers often called me Jay because I always wore a Toronto Blue Jays hat. Anyway, I worked at a rather well-known nightclub and worked only weeknights. The place was pretty nice and had a DJ and everything. Well, one Saturday, summer had just kicked in and the nights started to get warmer and warmer. 
My usual partner couldn't make it in that night due to personal problems in which he had to go visit a sick family member. The club wanted to call in someone else, but me, knowing how annoying it can be for work to suddenly call you in, refused the offer. I told them I didn't need the help, so it was just me letting people in that night. As the line got shorter and shorter, I was informed over the walkie-talkie on my belt that I would have to stay late since I had no partner to help me let people out. It was slightly irritating because the club runs fairly late anyway, usually closing around 3 a.m. It was only midnight then and I realized that I would have to stand out there for three more hours, but I tried to think my best about it, so I responded over the walkie-talkie, joking, saying I'd better get paid double for this. After everyone was safe inside the club, I linked the red rope closed and leaned against the side of the building's wall. I decided to get on my phone and take advantage of the club's Wi-Fi. After about half an hour, I became bored of that and decided to have a cigarette. But before I could pull my lighter out of my pocket, a skinny man began walking up to the club from across the street. Slowly, I lit my cigarette and just watched him as he approached. I have pretty poor eyesight, almost legally blind, so usually I would either wear my glasses or contacts, but tonight I had been in a rush and I didn't have time to grab anything, so I couldn't really see the details of this man. All I could make out from this distance is that he was very skinny and dirty looking. The closer he got, the better I could describe him. He was almost sickly thin. He was wearing an old gray sweatshirt and ripped up blue jeans. He was shaven, but it was poorly done and uneven. His skin looked too pale and his eyes were sunken in. I tried not to judge though and continued smoking until he walked up to the rope I stood behind. Could I get your name, sir? I asked, since even though this is a club in a shady downtown area, we still had a list of people who paid an entry fee before showing up. We didn't take money on the spot, since we've had some incidences in the past with people bribing guards. He furrowed his brows at me as if in thought, then looked quickly at the list that was clipped to the other side of my belt. He then spoke. Uh, Thomas? Uh, uh, James Thomas? He asked in a questioning manner which made him suspicious. Was he asking me or telling me his name? Not only that, but his voice was weird, like some sort of cartoon character. I ignored his tone and checked the list. Lucky for him, there was indeed a James Thomas on it. I quickly scratched out his name and picked up the rope to let him through. Well, have a nice night, I said to him as he walked through the big metal doors into the club. He then replied just before entering the doors, saying, Oh, I will. A couple of minutes later, no one else showed up, and it was now around 1.45. I would still have to stand there for another hour. However, a couple of minutes later, it was now 2 a.m., and there was a sudden shout from my walkie-talkie, which made me jump. It was a buddy of mine who worked as security inside the club. I didn't hear any words, just a loud yell, so I picked it up. Ryan, what's up, man? I asked calmly into the walkie-talkie. Jay, get in here! He was yelling over the bass of the music. I could barely even hear him over it. What's going on, man? I opened the doors and ran inside. One of the bartenders, 
said she saw a weird homeless man with a knife. I quickly made my way into the main area, where the bass of the music almost made me dizzy. The flashing lights and fog didn't make it any easier. Squinting, I slowly made my way to the bar, pushing past dancers and drunken men. When I reached my destination, the bartender, Eliza, explained everything to me. Jay, he's skinny and pale, and I saw him walking towards the lounge. Eliza quickly gave me a vague description and began repeating herself over the music. Almost hyperventilating, I tried calming her down, but she kept panicking and said that we should shut down the club and evacuate. I dismissed her idea, since the idea could trigger the man to do something irrational, and making this crowd of people panic could lead to some serious injuries or lawsuits. After finally calming her down, I began walking towards the lounge. I met up with Ryan on the way there. He was searching the lounge from a safe distance. Over here it was a little less loud, which meant you didn't need to shout over the music. Do you see the guy? I asked Ryan, but he shook his head. All these guys are skinny and pale, he said to me, and even in this kind of situation I let out a small laugh. I then looked into the lounge myself and noticed someone right away in the back corner. Even with my poor eyesight, I could tell that that was the same man that I just let in a few moments ago. It was the supposed James Thomas fellow. Knowing that I already had a suspicion of the guy, I tapped Ryan on the shoulder and motioned with my eyes towards the back of the room. He looked at the man and then back to me with a look that said, Are you sure? And I only nodded before walking towards James. As I approached, I noticed that he didn't have any empty glasses in front of him. There was nothing in front of him at all. This began triggering alarms in my head, since people only come to the lounge to drink in peace, meaning he came back here for some other purpose. Once I was right beside him, I spoke up, saying that I need him to step outside for a moment. Oddly enough, the man nodded then got up and began walking towards the nearest exit. It was going far smoother than I expected. No complaints or anything. He didn't even lift his head up to acknowledge me. As we passed Ryan, who was on the cell phone with the police, I told him that I can handle it and asked if he could wait at the front doors for the cops. He agreed. Then I stepped outside with the strange guy. We were now in the alleyway that was located behind the building. The only light was a small light bulb that hung above the metal door. As soon as the exit door closed, the man reached for something and I asked if he would keep his hands behind his back until the police arrived. But he kept reaching and as I advanced towards him, he suddenly pulled out a knife. It wasn't huge, but it could do some damage if he knew how to use it. In a quick motion, one that I barely saw coming, he took a swipe at me with it, cutting open my chest, but luckily I had jumped back, so it was nothing more than a scrape. Now I was mad. So I grabbed his arm and disarmed him, and I pushed him to the ground. When he hit the ground, he began laughing, laughing while desperately reaching for his knife, which was now laying about three feet away. He just kept laughing, high-pitched and loud, and then he began to curse me, saying that he'll gut me like a fish and slit everyone's throats. This guy wasn't on drugs, he was just insane, and he really did want to hurt someone, just for the simple sake of hurting people. 
Soon the sirens and police cars made their way down the alleyway. I let out a sigh of relief as I recognized the officer who was another friend of mine, so we could tell right away that I wasn't the dangerous one here. Michael, the officer, approached me and quickly cuffed the guy as I kept him down. He picked the guy up once I got off of him, but the man was still laughing. As Michael stuffed him in the back of the cruiser, the man yelled out, Stupid guard, you're the one who let me in. It was all on you. Which, he was right. I did let him in. I didn't bother patting him down, I just let him stroll on in. I immediately cursed myself for being so careless. Michael and I made our way back to the front of the club. He took the car while I quickly walked to the entrance. As I rounded the corner, I watched as an ambulance passed by with its sirens on. As Michael once again exited the police car, I asked in a panic if anyone had gotten hurt. He nodded and told me that a man just three blocks down the road had been knifed 30 times. I gasped. I asked for the man's name in curiosity, and Michael told me. James Thomas, I think. Why do you ask? I froze there, and Michael obviously noticed this. I slowly turned to face his vehicle and noticed that the man inside, who I thought was James, began laughing and shouting at me. He was taunting and threatening me. I told Michael everything, and he quickly notified everyone and made his way back to his cruiser and back to the station. Another officer told me that I might need to be a witness in a court trial, but luckily for me, I never had to attend. The incident caused me to take a few months off my job. I didn't quit, since I did love that job. I wasn't going to let one bad experience ruin everything for me. The club doubled its security and made it mandatory for outside guards to use a hand metal detector. The whole thing did shake me up pretty bad, and it's kind of been burned into my head. I let a deranged man inside a populated club with hundreds of easy targets. Luckily, no, the only man that was attacked miraculously covered fully. But still, that crazy man could have injured a lot more people in the club. And I'm just glad Elisa was able to spot him. Because if she didn't, this club would have never been the same. And it would have been all my fault. Security Officer Submitted by Jaden I'm a security officer, and I had just gotten contracted to conduct firewatch at an elementary school that was in a not-so-safe neighborhood. A really bad thunderstorm had come through the previous night, striking the building, which caused the fire alarm system to go down. To enter the school courtyard, the area is surrounded by gates with keypads. The new supervisor needed to conduct a walkthrough with me at the beginning of the shift. I didn't really know the layout of the building. So coming up on a corner, I wanted to check it for any doors. My supervisor stopped me from checking, saying she needed to walk me through the rest of the courtyard and the perimeters, so I gave up and didn't argue, as me and the supervisor in question usually never see eye to eye on anything. An hour later, when conducting my patrol, I found a side access gate that could only be opened from the inside if you didn't have a key. The thing was... The access gate had been left open and was just hanging there. Without thinking anything of it, I just closed it myself 
then went about my patrol as usual, not finding anyone at the time. However, a few hours later, around midnight, I had to go to the bathroom, thanks to some Red Bull and coffee, so I entered the courtyard to go use the one single-person restroom that was left for us to use. After doing my thing, I slowly opened the bathroom door, only to see some skinny man who looked tweaked out of his mind, holding a knife. The man was twitching and shaking all over, his eyes darting in every direction all at once. He looked like he was about to explode. He was wandering the courtyard inside the gate. I don't know what he was looking for, but he was definitely looking for something or someone. Then he began to scratch his chest with the knife. The moment I saw this scene, I shut the bathroom door and locked myself in, immediately calling the cops. But the man had seen me, and before I knew it, he was banging on the door, yelling in a delirious voice that he needed me to open the door, or he would do the worst kind of things to me, slow and painful things. Then I jumped back, because he began to rake the blade of the knife under the door. That was the longest twenty minutes of my life. The cops finally showed up, but the man had left moments ago. Still, I waited for the cops to arrive, not ready to take any chances. The police conducted a search of the area, and unfortunately at the time, they weren't able to find the suspect. I didn't have much to give the cops to go on, as I only saw the creep briefly before locking myself back in the restroom for safety. Lucky for me, the thunderstorms from the previous night didn't take out the school's security cameras. However, due to the budget cuts, the cameras weren't manned 24-7. Still, the odds stacked against us. The man was caught the following day after the school district pulled the security tapes. The tapes showed that he had entered from the same side gate, the same gate that I'd found hanging wide open hours earlier. Long story short, I refused to cover any more shifts at the school, only for as long as we had fire watch duty. I'm still a security officer, but I'm going to do anything I can to be better protected, just in case there's a next time.